0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, December the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today, so you know the deal. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air to talk about a topic of your choosing so, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273 5211 or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 86. 86- 26. So, as you heard Brian Medore in the VOCM News talking about the fact that you know where I'm starting this morning, that young Alex Newhook, St. John's native Stanley Cup champion, scored a pair last night. It's his pair of goals. It's his first multi-goal game in his NHL career. Last night was his 100th game, so he's not after the start he wanted this year. Needless to say, but he's one of those guys, especially with the injuries that the Colorado Avalanche have. Maybe see the opening of the floodgates. So, Pair last night gives him six on the year. In these 100 games, he's got 19 goals, 26 assists for 45 points. Not bad playing on the team. Such as the Colorado Avalanche. Go get him, Nish. Okay. Congratulations to Zach Dean. He played his minor hockey out of Mount Pearl. He plays for the Gatineau Olympique in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. He's been drafted by and signed by the Vegas Golden Knights. He's now been invited to Canada's national junior team camp coming up. And, of course, Hockey Canada, under siege in many corners. But for these young players, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to get to represent your country at the World Juniors, one of the most famous tournaments in the world. So good luck to Zach at camp. All right. So many people will be consumed or absorbed by the World Cup of Soccer, the FIFA World Cup. And remember back to 2012. After an absence of making the podium at the uh, soccer Canada was unable to win a medal in women's soccer for 108 years, and then in 2012 won the bronze. When they returned home, there was the thought that that would be the impetus to see professional women's soccer come to Canada. Didn't happen. So being spurred on now by Christine Sinclair and former national team member Diane Matheson, they made an announcement yesterday that Canada professional soccer will have a women's league uh, coming in 2025. So there's going to be some eight teams. Each team will absolutely have at least one Canadian international playing for them. Women's professional sports struggles in some corners. But if you look at the success, for instance, of the National Women's Soccer League, when the clubs were initially bought for 150,000 American 10 years ago, now they're valued at a minimum of $35 million each. They've got a couple of big sponsors already in place, Air Canada and CIBC, So this is a good thing, and you know, it's a heyday for Canadian soccer, and the time is right. The iron is hot, and it's been struck by Christine Sinclair and Diane Matheson. And as we're dazzled with the on-field exploits of some of the men playing in the World Cup, it's worth remembering and saying out loud that no man or woman has ever scored more international goals than Christine Sinclair. She's got 189. It's absolutely mind-boggling. An absolute Canadian legend and women's professional soccer It's coming to a city near you, possibly one of the eight cities that will get to host one of these teams. All right, and prep continues for the Canada Summer Games coming up in 2025 in this region. I'm going to volunteer one of the weeks. I just really am looking forward to that, and I wonder if you are as well. And good luck in all the preparations for the young minor hockey players getting set for their Christmas hockey tournaments. Okay, this is really quite a great story. I read it just earlier. I haven't fully wrapped my mind around it, but... Angela Quinn, she's just turned 100 years of age, originally from Chapel's Cove, where in the house she lived with her mother, her father, her nine sisters, and two brothers. Gone are those days. I mean, if you ask somebody now, how many children do you have? Three. Oh, my God, you must be busy. Just imagine what it must have been like for the households with the 10, 20, 25 children. But Angela, she met her husband, uh, eventually married, and they t- were, They found out that they couldn't have children. So they wanted to figure out how to see their house filled With the laughter and all that goes with it, with children. So they started to foster children. Over the years, Angela and her husband have fostered at least 25 kids. Some of them from very early on in life, run through right through young adulthood, some that came and went over the course of a few months. But Angela has lived quite a life. So in the 1950s, her husband had a heart attack. He was 25 years a heavy equipment operator. She didn't want to see him suffer another heart attack. And because they were farming, she took on the lion's share of the tasks. So on the farm, a couple of horses, several cows, calves, goats, sheep, lambs, kids, pigs, chickens, turkey, geese. She milked the cows for fresh milk, butter and cream. She had the fresh eggs gone, a garden of fresh vegetables. So through all of that over the 100 years, quite the story and the life. But the days of having all of those children in the one household... I can't even wrap my mind around it, to be honest with you. Two felt like a handful. Nah, manageable, right? I have one buddy who has five kids, and I can't even imagine that. And I'm one of five in my household as well. But anyway, happy birthday to Angela Quinlan, and what a life. 25 kids fostered in the loving home of the Quinlans. Terrific. Okay. So this story, not where to start. And don't want to offer it as tongue-in-cheek because it's a really big deal for so many people who have been parishioners, members of the congregation at one Catholic church or another. And, of course, so many of those properties have been sold in an effort to try to raise enough money to pay compensation to the victims at Mount Cashel. So, $31 million has been projected to be raised at this moment in time. Still a lot of outstanding properties to be sold, but the story that I think is offered with maybe a little tiny bit of tongue-in-cheek, but it's interesting. So, Mary Queen of Peace, I pass it all the time right there on McDonald Drive. The Bingo Hall and the Associated Soccer Field and Baseball Diamond had been sold, and they were sold to former Premier Danny Williams for $3 million. Compare that to the price tag for the Basilica package, which was $500,000 less. So the Bingo Hall gone, and I suppose it's continued to operate like that. It's a busy spot and probably a moneymaker, but the Bingo Hall and a couple of Athletic facilities are more expensive than the St. Bonds Forum, the Basilica property in full, and of course that's really quite strange. But, you know, the impact that it's had on some communities, and especially those who are the parishioners, is very real. And no need to take away their sadness or frustration with the fact that the church, the church halls, bingo halls, rectories, and maybe some access points to the graveyards has been cut off because of the need to sell. And it still does bother me and I'm a lapsed Catholic, it bothers me to no end that the Vatican refuses to step in. You know, it just goes to show what the Vatican must think of their flock. You know, the way that they've handled some of the collared representatives of the church, and for the prisoners now who are just out of a place of worship. And the Vatican sitting on billions upon billions of dollars, and here we are, seeing people who've had a church in their community for maybe a century or more, and now it's gone. Add to it, It remains to be seen what the fate of some 33 schools and 11,000 students is. You can't foresee uh, an outcome where the school is sold and is no longer used for educational purposes, as is protected in legislation with the Schools Act. So that story is really quite bizarre, but we're going to have to follow that through the courts to see where it lands. But that's a big topic if you want to take it on. We can do it. All right, and also as you heard Brian mention, and you're going to hear many people mention is just what the respiratory illness season looks like, whether it be the seasonal influenza or RSV or COVID, what we are seeing across the country, and now an uptick or a surge for young children presenting sick at the Janeway. As a result, apparently there's been no surgeries cancelled yet, but many appointments have been cancelled. Rescheduling is ongoing. But if the numbers are approaching capacity-related matters now, it's not hard to foresee things getting worse before they get better. Some of that, of course, is complicated by the fact that so many parents are having a hard time finding cold and flu medicine, acetaminophen or ibuprofen, for their child. And if you're a parent, you know full well a sick child is the most stressful thing you can possibly consider. One of my neighbors uh, has a child in grade 6. Yesterday, only 6 of 27 students were in the classroom. 6 of 27. And some of them apparently are quite ill at home. So where we go with that conversation, I'll leave it up to you. But you add to it the number of respiratory therapists who have walked away in the recent past from Eastern Health and the lack of cold meds. And then you read a story. It's really quite something. This lady living out in CBS had a sick three-year-old. And through consultation with 811 said, you have to see a doctor within 24 hours. Well... Easier said than done, as this woman found out. Now, she has a family doctor, but the earliest appointment she could get inside of that clinic was far too late, beyond the 24-hour recommendation. So going around to the walk-in clinic, coming to the emergency room in St. John's, told you're going to have to wait hours with a pretty sick child, eventually got to see a doctor, and the prescription of antibiotics to deal with the strep throat and the fever was given, and the child is on the mend, which is the good news. But when we all have that arduous task of trying to get into the healthcare churn because once you're in there, by and large, the healthcare professionals are top-notch. But it's the frustration for so many of you waiting for a procedure or the unknown of when you're going to get a procedure and whether or not you can find a family doctor and with all of the sick children that we're seeing around. And that's not fear-mongering, that's the reality. That's what we're actually seeing on the ground, including inside my social circles where the absentee rate is getting pretty extraordinary. In some schools, and that's a topic for your consideration, of course it is. Okay. So it's hard to know some days, you know, whether or not we're beating dead horses, but the stories remain very eerily similar. Day over day, week over week, month over month. And please do pepper me with some good news, like a gentleman did yesterday with an act of kindness from a tow truck operator. But people are keeping a close eye on the Bank of Canada. Set the hike interest rates again. Nobody, no central banker knows exactly what the future holds. And interest rates absolutely cannot see a pragmatic impact on inflation for 6, 12, 18 months down the line. So with inflation where it is and the cost of living and the cost of groceries, I don't know where we start here, but in 2020, when it was 0.25% as the benchmark rate, of course, no one gets to borrow at that rate, and here we stand at 3.75, the thought that another quarter point or half a point might be in the offing. You wonder whether or not even if it is one of the monetary policy levers that Tiff Macklum and others at the Bank of Canada can pull, whether it might make things worse in the short term. And I'm not so sure how many Canadians can suffer things worse than they are right this moment in time. I've been out there trying to do some fundraising and dealing with uh, a bunch of businesses, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard the reference to the Bank of Canada as to why they're hesitant to spend any money. You know, all the same time, I mean, talk about the epitome of a perfect storm. The money was cheap to borrow. People did indeed borrow. So with inflation and cost of living and the interest rates and how much money has been borrowed, so even outside your mortgage, which is most everybody's largest debt, even though it builds towards some equity in the, at some point in the future, Canadians have the highest household debt in history. So I don't know how they factor that in because it's one thing to sit in the quote-unquote ivory tower and think about big-picture Uh, big picture inflationary controls but how many people just can't suffer a half a point raise look it whether it be your mortgage and the trigger effect that that may indeed take place for so many homeowners across the country but people are waiting with bated breath to see what's going to become of the Bank of Canada's most recent maneuver and that's coming okay The Federal Liberals have got to take a deep breath, step back, and figure out what they're doing with Bill C-21, gun control legislation. You know, most often when there's late amendments made to legislation, it muddies the waters, confusion reigns supreme, and then there's going to be, in my personal opinion, very fair questions asked as to how they evaluated what firearms or weapons or guns end up on a banned list. People who are in the know, and I took the time yesterday to connect with some gun owners that I know, and they are hunters, and they take it quite seriously. It's one of their most beloved pastimes is to be out in the great outdoors and, yes, hunt for game, for food. They're not trophy hunters. They pointed out several examples of this firearm here is almost identical to that firearm there. One is banned, one is not. So it might be a real problem politically for them, but even just pragmatically and realistically, If the starting point is fewer guns, I get it. But if the real thought is that it's about public safety, then they've got to go back to the well. Everybody knows it to be true. Even though there was a hike in the homicide rate, a very small one in the country last year, almost 25% of the gun-related violence is in amongst organized crime, the criminal element. Gangs. So then you see a story yesterday, which is exactly what public safety is all about when we talk about guns and gun violence. The Toronto police... They reported, a, I think, an eight-month sting, Project something or other. I can't remember what they called it at this moment time. Project Barbell. So this is where public safety is enhanced. There was 260 criminal charges laid and f- 62 firearms confiscated. And you know full well, as per the Integrated Gun and Gang Task Force, those guns were headed for the street. That's where the key focus has to be. It's not to say that more gun legislation isn't a good thing for Canadians and public safety, and especially when we talk about the fact that today is one of the most somber commemorations in Canadian history, the mass murder at Ecole Polytechnique in 1989. It's not, again, to say that, you know, you're a law-abiding citizen until you're not, but that was a legally purchased weapon. It spurred on a lot of gun control conversation. There was 14 women murdered, 10 more women were injured, 4 men were injured, and the perpetrator you know, in large part said it was a fight against feminism. So there's lots of red flags that have to be associated with gun control. I got no problem with handguns being banned and stiffening the penalties for smuggling handguns into the country. But the Liberals could do us and themselves a favour by a careful reconsideration of how Bill C-21 has pr- been presented and exactly what, it's in- what it entails. And to alleviate the technical confusion about how certain weapons, who are very similar to their other counterparts made by different manufacturers with the exact same capacity but different model numbers, all of a sudden are banned. It just makes things confusing. It allows for the hyperbolic rhetoric about you'll never be able to hunt again or defend yourself and all those types of things. That's because gun conversations have become extraordinarily difficult. But I think it's a conversation worth having. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, there's a couple of pockets in particular in the province where the per capita gun ownership is right there with the biggest gun ownership. You'd think that it would be, you know, maybe Western Canadians with the hunting aspect or in the, some heavily populated Central Canadian provinces and regions. But we're right in there on those numbers. All right, and speaking of violence, there's been some sort of coalition struck to deal with violence in the downtown core of this city. And I think a lot of lessons that these, this organization might bring forward could help other places in the province that certainly see a certain level of violence. But with the population in St. John's, it probably feels a lot worse than other areas because the numbers, of course, will add up much more quickly. So between the city of St. John's, downtown St. John's, the George Street Association, Destination St. John's, Hospitality NL, the RNC Music NL, they've joined forces to try to come up with some sort of plan. You know, the conversations might be slightly different in neighborhood to neighborhood and or in the bar areas of the city. But a lot of this has to boil back to the addiction to these synthetic garbage drugs which are turning people into absolute zombies. You know, and I every time I talk about it, I will eventually be called a social justice warrior and all the things which you intend to insult me with. And you can do exactly that, email, Twitter, whatever you see fit. But if we don't deal with the drugs, we're never going to be able to do much about curbing the violence. You know, decades ago, when the most extravagant illicit drug was cocaine, and it wasn't stamped and caught with the fentanyls of the world and what have you, and the pills that people are being hooked on so quickly, it is not a. It is not about your income or your level of contribution to society and or your family status or your socioeconomic status. Anybody can c- become... Uh, addicted at any time now for many of these people in the downtown core it does seem like people who have been impoverished and now have this level of addiction but we've got to get a handle on it we just do to even say that it's simply a matter of putting more police in the region that's a short-term band-aid it just is because it's a revolving door they'll be back out ASAP and they won't have cut or uh, kicked their addiction and so what happens not a whole lot becomes a turnstile so the societal issues and the supports required and the types of drugs being consumed and the help and assistance to get off the drugs if you want because you can't you can't be forced off them. You have to want to realize that you've reached the bottom, the spiral is complete, and you need to get some help. But that coalition's got their hands they've got their work cut out for them and we can take it on. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? A couple of quick ones. So the City of St John's applied to the province for some financial assistance and dealing with the residents of uh, Kilbride and the amount of damage done by Hurricane Earl, or post-tropical storm Earl. So lots of roads were damaged and a number of homes were damaged. Some people had insurance coverage. Some people had none. Some people were underinsured. And so the city applied for some, uh, pardon me, what was the big number they applied for? It's over $900,000, and they've been denied in full. The whole issue regarding insurance and what gets covered Do yourself a favor and connect back with your broker and find out exactly what's going on. Because even if you see what happened in Kilbride or in Basque or anywhere else, and I know there's some discussions about coverage for storm surge and those types of things, but so many people get caught off guard. They say, well, I've got insurance. Oh, my God, there's some damage to X, Y, or Z. I'm going to my insurance company just to find out. I'm either uninsured for it, no coverage for it, or I'm underinsured. So... Look, the brokers are there to answer your questions, not just to sell your policies, but the residents of Kilbride, and if you're one of them, who has maybe $8,000 worth of insurance coverage but $50,000 in damage, we're happy to take it on. Last one. So there's always going to be some questions and some controversy swirling at institutions, including at Memorial University. So whether it be removal of the old to Newfoundland convocation ceremonies, and look, people have an emotional attachment to that song. And then there's the issue with how protesters were dealt with at the most recent uh, address made by President Vianne Simmons. Uh, What do they call it, the Community Report? Yeah, I think that's what it is. It used to be the President's Report. Now I think they call it the Community Report. And we're going to speak with Dr. Vianne Timmons coming up very shortly. So if there's anything that you'd like for me to put to President Timmons, I'm happy to do it on your behalf. We're on Twitter. We're Line. Follow us there. Our email address is OpenLine at VOSim.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call, don't you know? Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. (laughs) In addition to Zach Dean, uh, who played his minor in Mount Pearl, being invited to Team Canada's World Junior Camp. Coming up, another person from the province plays for Boston University, who we've given a shout-out. He was Player of the Week there a little while ago. That's Ryan Green. He's also on his way to camp. Let's go begin with line number three this morning. Cindy, you're on the air.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted did. to call and talk a little bit about the little free pantries that have popped up in Mount Pearl over the last year. Sure. And the uh, Christmas food fundraiser we're holding tomorrow night to try to raise some non-perishables to put in them. Um, Santa Claus is going to be at the Mount Pearl Library 630 tomorrow for stories and picture taking. And we're inviting the public to come and admittance, admit, uh, the admittance fee is... Um, any non-perishable food item.
1: It's a good thing. You know, I really do take great pride and pleasure in the fact that people are acknowledging what's going on out there, trying to help in any way they can. But ultimately, it's also with great sadness that we know there's so many people in need and people like yourself have to take this on to just try to get some food to those who need it the most. It's really that... It's that contradiction, isn't it? It's a feel good and good on you, but then knowing that so many people are in need is also quite troubling.
2: It really is. I I started this in January. It kind of took off on me, and um, it is very mixed emotions. The need is really great, and we're doing what we can to try to help. Just a little drop in the bucket here.
1: And so you're going to do the drive to try to uh, fill up the pantries, but give us an example of what are in some of these pantries, where they are, what people need to do, or is it just come and take what you need and hopefully don't take it all because there's someone right behind you who also needs it. That's
2: exactly what it is. Um, They are located, there's seven pantries located around Mount Pearl. Um, There's some by the Reed Center, the library, and you can find some on different avenues in in the city. the neighborhood has been really good at just taking it upon themselves and filling them themselves as well, so that's really welcome um, it started it really started in January of this this year. I saw a post online of someone had filled a large freezer bag with pet and mitts and some food items and left it on a park bench for someone to find who might need it and that really inspired me I didn't want to just retweet. The example I wanted to go out and do something similar, and when I put, I made enough for four kids and left them around park benches here in the city. And when uh, people saw I was doing that, it just caught on, and the support was overwhelming. So much so that I had local businesses donating um, food and items for the for the kids. Uh, Mount Pearl saw what I was doing, and they actually within a couple of weeks reached out to me because I had so much um, support from the public and items that I had nowhere to put them. (laughs) So they actually made the pantries for me and had them erected within a few weeks to house all the items
1: i was going to ask who's the carpenter in the house because it's one thing to have the idea quite another to be able to execute so good on the city for doing it how how much more frequently do you have to check on the pantries refill them since january because from where i sit in the stories i hear if there was a hundred people that would have availed of that in january it's 200 today
2: it is um I've, I've been myself, um, just from the support of the public, been able to get out at least once a week to check on them um, if, if there's any damage. And I, I'm really proud to say that they've been respected by the public. There's been no, no damage done to them except by the wind. And we can't get away from that here, unfortunately. But um, if there's any damage at all, the city is really quick to get on that and fix them for me. Um, we've had some really great success with them um, um, doing up different kits in that place in them during different times of the year. Um, like back to school time, I started a fundraiser and we had enough kits to make um, complete school kits. So everything from pencils to glue, scissors. Tanks, everything a child needed to start school. We had 14 kits ready and made and out in the pantries for families to find who might need them. Um, we did the same thing Thanksgiving. We had dinner kits made, so everything you would need for a Thanksgiving dinner was made up into a kit and left for people to find. So we had complete meals, which consisted of full-size tin of ham, Um, We had boxes of potatoes and stuffing. We had the fresh vegetable stew packs, tins of gravy, and treats all put in one package. So people could sit down and enjoy a thanksgiving meal and we're doing the same thing again now for christmas and that's why we're having that fundraiser tomorrow night
1: give us the details on the fundraiser one more time cindy
2: um fundraiser is taking place at the mount pearl library santa claus will be here he'll be reading stories to the children we'll be singing songs and um, we're only asking people bring non-perishable food items and uh, parents can, uh, Santa will be staying t- for pictures, so parents can take pictures of their kids with Santa as well.
1: I think it's awesome. I really appreciate the time. Keep up the good work, Cindy. Merry Christmas to you and yours.
2: Thank you so much. And Merry Christmas to you as well.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Free little, power, little free pantries in the city of Mount Pearl. And you see them pop up uh, around, not only with some food stuffs, but also some places like the little mini libraries, you know. Uh, take one, leave one kind of stuff cool bit of community action right there. Will I take anything else before we come back? No, I should probably try to stay on task here. Uh, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of Tom and Sandy in the queue, but when we come back, we're going to be speaking with the president of Memorial University. That's Dr. Vian Timmons. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number four. Say so good morning to the president of Memorial University. That's Dr. Vian Timmons. Dr. Timmons, you're on the air.
3: Thank you, Patty. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you. Uh, appreciate you making time for the show. Now, no end to the issues that we need to talk about at Memorial University, but one that has become a very emotionally charged issue is when the Old to Newfoundland was taken away from the convocation ceremonies. It will still be sung at other so- some other celebrations at the school. You, I think, in re- in reflection, didn't really think it was going to get this kind of reaction from the general community. What are your thoughts on it today?
3: So, Patty, that's a really good point. Uh, um, The ode is very emotional for so many people, and we've learned that. Um, We've learned also there are very differing views on um, what we have done. We have had many people who have not supported what we've done. Many people have said, no, we really need to look at the ode and the words in it, and then I've had many people who have said, "Um, thank you for doing that. So it's a really important discussion that many, many universities are having. You look at Ryerson they changed the name of the university. McGill is in those discussions. Many institutions across Canada are really looking at, um, at names in particular and what they signify. And our students, for our students, words matter. That's what we teach them. So I think it's an important discussion, and uh, we'll keep working our way
4: through
1: it. But of course, Ryerson, McGill, and you know McDonald and those things, they come with connotations that are really quite dire and devastating in some cases, unlike the potential for an Labrador student or family to feel excluded from the ode to Newfoundland when we talk about inclusion, talk us through the thought process because for me, including is adding as opposed to removing because now there's a reference to neither the Ota Newfoundland or the melody of O Tenenbaum for the Ota Labrador. So how was how did the thought process go with inclusion equaled removing?
3: So we didn't remove it from the university. We sang it at Remembrance Day where it's historical and it really is connected uh, to the regiment and we will continue to do so. Convocation is about students and if one student crossing that stage feels excluded, then we need to take a look at it. It's their celebration, it's their voices that really, really matter at Convocation. And we've been doing a number of changes to Convocation to make all our students feel included. We had Throat singing at Convocation this year, and really exciting. We had the first time ever a student wore their Indigenous regalia as they crossed the stage. That is amazing to me. So I, 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 I do not see it as being excluding, because we still are included in the ode in many of our ceremonies where, where it is focused on the historical um, history. But this is about the future and it's about our students.
1: Inclusion is extremely... I'm sorry, you you cut out. I, I thought you were finished. I'm sorry.
3: I said it was made in light of other changes that we made to make sure that it was inclusive of all our students.
1: Inclusion is important for every reason imaginable. How do you square the inclusion circle with the Audit Newfoundland decision? And for instance, with William Sears, who felt excluded because he needed his professor to wear an FM transmitter so that he could be, he could understand what was being offered in the lecture. So there's a human rights appeal. You offered that professor the opportunity to deny Sears that assistance in class. So how do you square that inclusion circle Well, we're not including William Sears, but we're also concerned with excluding people from Labrador?
3: So that predates me um patty so um but I do know that it is resolved now, and that the human rights uh supported the student, and we have um supported
1: that decision. when did that happen because I hadn't heard that
3: oh yeah that that happened in October early October.
1: Terrific. Let's get down to, I know what you want to discuss today, and it used to be called the President's Report, but now I believe it's referred to as the Report to the Community. There's a variety of things in it, but before we get to some of the important work done at Memorial and some of the highlights of it, when the protesters, whether it be Matt Barter's story, which was getting getting headlines, and or the protesters from Monsoo this past weekend that were removed, what led to the removal of the protesters?
3: So they were not removed, Patty. They were not removed from the protest. Um, they came in when I was there. They stood in front of me. Um, they held up the slip and they blocked me from the audience. I did ask them if they would move to the side so I could interact with the audience because we had a question and answer period. They declined. And so I uh, I walked away. They stood there through the entire event Um in the front of the event. So they were not removed.
1: Oh, cuz all I saw was the risk officer video saying that they had to leave. So they did not leave.
3: No, no, and that was that they were leaving when the risk officer spoke to them. But that was on their own. That was on their own. So they they were not they were not removed from they they silently and peacefully protested there, but they did interrupt the event and and block me from being able to see the audience.
1: What would you say to folks who, you know, whether it be at Monsoon or other students, because campuses of universities have long been the home of sit-ins and of dissent, because it's that ability to think for yourself, to stand up to those in authority, to uh, talk about societal issues, to talk about operations at the university. Where's the place for protesters at Memorial? Because there has been some concerns with what people would call heavy-handedness with Matt Barter and or these most recent protesters. What do you say to those who want to be heard and how that's going to happen on campus?
3: So, as a university, we absolutely support student protest. Um, And, you know, we we will not be interfering with student protest unless they um, get too close to people or um, are intimidating to people because safety is really important. Um, The situation you mentioned with one student I can't speak about uh, because uh, the student is taking us to court, but there was an independent investigation to look at... um, at that and I would encourage you to read it because it's very clear there's a difference between protest and harassment and that is the line we want to educate our students it's really important that they're educated about that line so you know our at, same at that event on Friday the students were not removed I spoke to them I even they were invited to the event by the way Patty we invited the student union to participate and come as part of our community. <laughs>
1: Most of the protests are surrounding the fact that the provincial government withheld, I believe, the number $65 million over five years. Consequently, the move on tuition. International student enrollment is strong and has grown. What do you foresee the future being for domestic students, given what was probably one of the most alluring facets of Memorial University, was the cost. Sometimes, I think, in the past, we probably focused on that too much and took away some focus on the great cooperative programs and departments, whether it be engineering or pharmacy or what have you. What do you foresee the issue with domestic students with the increase in tuition that we've seen?
3: So we did this year has a drop um, in domestic student enrollments, and we need to get out in the schools and really uh, ramp up our recruitment. We have committed millions to scholarships for students from this province, and and we really want our best and our brightest to come to Memorial. We've also increased our student aid and emergency fund and work with government. Government has increased the student aid portfolio. Um, So my hope is that there's no student with financial need that cannot come to Memorial. As you know, also, Patty, we, we did not uh, increase the tuition for those who are already here because that was important. We felt we had a contract with them. And so students who are in second, third and fourth and fifth year are on the on the same tuition as others. And the other important point is we have the lowest tuition in Atlantic Canada. And that that was a deliberate thing to make sure that our education was
1: accessible to our students. Whether withdrawal or whatever the proper word is for provincial government funding going to Memorial University there still remains a pretty significant uh, maintenance deficit or infrastructure deficit. What has been the new approach, fiscally speaking, to deal with it? You know, it's great to see the new science building built, and that's important, but we do know the age of memorial diversity is starting to show. So what has your leadership group done? What's the new approach to the infrastructure deficit? Because the withdrawal of money from the provincial government here has really been reflected, reflected in tuition and fees.
3: Yes, um, and it is a real issue for this university, our deferred maintenance. And we do have a strategy. Dr. Timmons? Our boilers this year, it's a multimillion-dollar project that's done in partnership with the provincial and federal government. So they are helping us with some of our infrastructure challenges, but um, they are serious, and we need we're trying to get them we look at the most critical um and many people don't see the work done on mechanical and electrical and water because it's behind the walls right but we also need to and i have been pushing the campus boost.
1: boy oh boy dr timmons we've had a couple of dropouts here folks hopefully uh uh, and she's dropped. Can we can we try to get her back tape? Because there's a couple more we'd like to broach before we wrap up our time with Doctor Timmins. So, okay, let's see. Let's get another one before we take the break, and hopefully, return with Doctor Timmons. Line number two, Sandy, you're on the air.
5: Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you today?
1: Doing very well, thanks. How are you doing?
5: Good. I'm um, I'm calling about uh, a benefit fundraiser at the ship on Thursday. I want to just put out a shout out about it. Go right ahead. Um. My husband is John Cosser. He's a local singer-songwriter, and he's got uh, terminal cancer. I'm sure you've probably heard about it. And uh, uh, I've been trying for almost a year now to find a way to stay home with him to be his caregiver, because his uh, cancer is progressing. he's pretty aggressive, and um, I would like to be home with him and for us to be together as much as we can be you know before the inevitable happens. And we really can't afford for me to be home. So I've been trying to figure out ways to to do that. And I applied for EI, uh, and I'm a self-employed housekeeper, so I I was turned down. I don't qualify for EI. And when I found out I didn't qualify, I was really upset. And I went on a Facebook rant, and um, Gavin Sims from CBC saw my rant and asked if he could interview us. He interviewed us. Uh, We were on the morning show with Christy Holmes. A local musician named Hugh Scott heard the the interview and reached out from uh, out of the depths of his heart and created a fundraiser for us at the ship. And it's this Thursday night at nine p.m. Terrific! And, uh, yeah, and it's got a great lineup of people: uh, Colleen Power, Andrew and Chris LeDrew, uh Rick Land, Chris Ryan, Sean De Murphy, uh, Dave, and Jeff Panting. And I'm pretty excited about it. It's $20 to get in. And uh, you mentioned something about having uh, raffles. uh, I'm not sure what some kind of gifts, packages and prizes and stuff. So that should be interesting. And also, um, a a month ago when this was proposed to us, this concert, John wasn't doing so well. And I was worried that... He wouldn't be able to attend, but he's turned a bit of a corner, and uh, we're going to sing even on Thursday night. So excited and incredibly nervous about that. (laughs) He's not nervous, I'm nervous.
1: Well, there's good people that you've reached out to. Hugh's a good fella. Good musicians that you've got in the lineup. 20 bucks. Of course, the ship is a renowned venue. And look, you know, when people in the arts community, musicians in particular, I think, it's just never ceased to amaze me how they're so willing to step up and to help the community, help individuals, help different causes, put their talents on stage to the benefit of others. I think it's brilliant. So what night did you say it was, Sandy?
5: It's this week. It's Thursday night and from 9 o'clock at night until 12.
1: I hope it's a roaring success. Thanks for telling us about it.
5: Thank you. And a big shout-out to Tony Murray for allowing it to happen in his venue. Yeah, and Tony's you, the best. Scott, for doing all the hard work.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Thank Patty. you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break on cue. but when we come back, we do indeed have Dr. Vianne Timmons back in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin Memorial University President uh, Dr. Vianne Timmons on 5. Dr. Timmons, you're back on the air.
3: Sorry, Patty, I guess we got cut off.
1: Yeah, uh, the call just dropped, Bob. My apologies if it was on our end. Just for clarification before we keep going, is the university appealing the human rights decision regarding William Sears? I know it didn't happen no. on your watch initially, but are you appealing that decision? No. So it's not happening. You've now sided with the students and that's, the, that's that.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Okay. We settled that.
1: So we were talking about keeping their best and brightest. There's also an interesting story, and I know the comment coming from the universities. you're following federal guidelines regarding the path to permanent residency for people who are doing graduate studies at Memorial University. They were qualified enough to go through what's called the rigorous academic standards, but unable to get a job in an effort to have permanent residency. Some of them want to start their own business. So talk about keeping our best and brightest. What needs to be done on that front? Because initially this year, there was a problem with student visas and stuff, given federal backlogs. But what needs to change there so we can keep our best and brightest? So
3: the federal government did... um Provide relief on the number of weeks international students can work, and that's kind of a mixed blessing because some international that will impact on their academics right when they have to increase their work hours. Uh, but we have a talent challenge in this province, and our international students are well educated, hard workers, and entrepreneurial as you mentioned, and um, we need to figure out a way to um, ease our employment and find ways. For them to get employment here because when they graduate many want to stay so we in our international office have brought in a career advisor employment counseling we're working with all our graduates international graduates to really find them employment um, to give really specialized help and support and to match them with employers in the province.
1: I know you don't do roll call with students, uh, whether or not they're present in class or what have you, but are we having an issue with lecturers and professors and absenteeism, whether it be for sickness or other reasons? One of My, my son has had a few classes cancelled. This one lady says that her son has had multiple classes cancelled and one in-person class cancelled for five full weeks. Are we having a problem?
3: So I ha- it has not come to my desk. If we have, I know that um, we've had high percentages of the flu, as you're quite Mm-hmm. well aware. Um, but I will ask those questions. It ha- it may have gone to the Vice President, Academic Provost. It hasn't come up to my office yet, but I'm going to look into it, Patty.
1: I do want to get to the report to the community. The issue at the beginning of the season was not only, or the school year, was not only uh, student visas, what have you, but the housing crunch, especially in this area. 9% vacancy uh, last year, this year around 3 There was a program called Home Share, where a senior could take in a, a grad student or an international student for low-cost rent in exchange for some household chores, what have you. It went by the wayside because of the tune of some $40,000. Do you see that being a win for the senior, a win for the student, a win for the university to reinstate something like that program?
3: Absolutely would be a win. And I know you mentioned that in your um, interview with Lisa Brown. Yeah. And I'm looking into it because uh, I wasn't aware of that program. So you're educating me, Patty, which I appreciate. But definitely those kind of innovative approaches are really worthwhile. Cornerbrook's another area where we have real challenges in student housing. And, you know, we're going to have to look at additional residence space. And I know that they have a proposal that looks at combining senior housing with student housing that I'm really excited about, and I'm hoping government will get on side.
1: Let's get some of the reports uh, to the community. And one issue is regarding food. And so part of the highlight package regards uh, farming the north. What exactly is entailed in that hub in Labrador?
3: So this is really exciting. One, the Labrador campus opened this year, the, as uh, able to provide academic program. We have the pie farm in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And it is looks at hardy foods that can survive in northern climate. And this year, they had a huge success in um, growing hardy foods, potatoes, turnips, strawberries, even. And once they've done all the research and have all of those foods, they give those foods to the community, to people that need all along the coast. And there were hundreds and hundreds of tons of food that they distributed. So that is the kind of community connection that we do at Memorial University that sometimes isn't as well advertised as we need to make it.
1: One area of endeavor that is not really well understood, but it's coming and at breakneck pace is, sent, is pardon me, artificial intelligence. There's yeah. a lot of good, there's a lot of concerning factors regarding uh, AI. You have a new center opened at the university. What's the focus there? And how do we say, assess some of the public concerns with the artificial intelligence?
3: So this is a new center just opened. Um, it's in our core science building. Um, it's just getting up and getting going, but it is. Looking um, with engineering and computer science as leads, but also social science, as you mentioned, you know, looking at what are the ethics around artificial intelligence? How can we make sure that um, the impact on society is measured and thought through? So um, it will look at a multidisciplinary disciplinary approach, both on the technology side or also on the human side of introducing more artificial intelligence, which you're right, it's coming fast and furious.
1: Yeah, so once that gets up and running, we'll dig into that a little deeper. Uh, Also, I want to talk about sustainable solutions and the just transition and the like, I mean the Canada Ocean Supercluster just yesterday announced a couple of exciting projects that are really well funded to the tune of multi-million dollar projects and then you look at some of the coastal issues that we have to tackle we've got the potential to be the center of excellence in North America you know with the simulators and the programs at the Marine Institute with the work done at Seacore with the uh, gateway to the north and money plays a key role so when we talk about sustainable solutions you talk about it through two wide seeing lens, what are both eyes, and what are we doing?
3: So we're doing many things around that, both at the marine level, you know, forty percent of our research is um, oceans, and so we're really looking at the impact um, on oceans and the impact of climate change also on the north. We're doing a lot of work up in the north, looking at the ice. And the erosion of the ice and the impact on people's lives up there. We also in Corner Brook it, we have environmental science faculty that is doing amazing work, looking at waste, both forest waste and fishing waste, and looking at how we can uh, use those wastes to in a in a way that helps grow grow um, for agriculture. So there is so many things we're doing. We're looking at coastline erosion. Um, Our scientists are doing amazing work in in the area of sustainability and climate change and will continue to do so into the future. And you're right. Newfoundland is a living lab for us, Newfoundland and Labrador. Our scientists work on the land with the people and spend time in the communities.
1: We spoke with Rob Greenwood from the Harris Centre yesterday. We heard from Joel Finnis and his participation in the creation of the Vital Science Report municipalities and their nimble ability to create programs regarding climate change uh, mitigation measures. But, of course, that's going to require some investing from uh, from government, some out-of-house expertise that they're going to need to bring in. What role can Memorial University play there? Because as opposed to hiring an independent consultant, we've got a lot of real knowledgeable people that can be an important cog in the wheel of coming up with these plans. What's the role of the university?
3: So we committed um, $100,000, $10,000 to... community scientist partnerships so one of our faculty or postdocs they can get ten thousand dollars to spend time in a community working on issues that the community identifies so instead of having to go out and hire a consultant, you can come to the university, partner with a, one of our scientists. But the requirement is that they actually spend time in the community. So they have to go in the community, and the project has to be community-driven. Di- this is just an initial investment, so there will be 10 community scholars. My hope is that we can increase that pretty significantly once we see the success of it. Um, we know that we one of our scholars went to Norris Point and worked with the community on a sustainability plan for that community. That's the kind of thing that we want to increase and do more of.
1: Uh, I'll give you a chance to speak to any other highlights you'd like to approach. I've looked through the report, but uh, you know we've had you for an extended amount of time. I'd like to give you the opportunity if you'd like to offer some other highlights that the folks would be interested in hearing.
3: Do you know, Patty, I love that Newfoundland and Labradorians are so engaged in our university and that everybody has a comment or opinion on things we do. I want that to continue. I, I really hope it does. But I'm also, as a university, we need to remind people that civil discourse and dialogue is really important. And in my two and a half years that I've been here, um, I have been surprised and disappointed at the nastiness that is part of that dialogue. And I know that your platform is one that is really important for constructive, uh, respectful interaction. And I would encourage your listeners to remember that there are, that kind of dialogue will make change, respectful interaction, and I'm looking forward to seeing a change in the kind of, um, I guess, nastiness that um, I've seen up there that has no place anymore in our society. So I'm I'm really hoping that uh, your listeners will respect and understand that position.
1: You know, individual behavior, individual choices, organizational choices and policies is tough to navigate when you're on the other side of the coin or the other end of the table. How do you, as opposed to simply offering that message, which I welcome, uh, how do you and your leadership team create an atmosphere where the temperature can be dialed back, create an atmosphere where some of the rhetoric is more on point versus personal, which is what we've seen in the recent past? What do you do?
3: Well, I try to respond to the majority of the feedback that I get, um, no matter what the opinion is, in a respectful, um, appreciative way. And I do. I want people to engage with us. Um, I've had to stop responding to some people because... No matter what I say, they're going to come back um, with what I feel are inappropriate personal, gendered um, comments and approach. So um, I think I, I need, we need to teach people how to treat us, too. We need to take a stand. And as, women, as a woman in particular and a woman leader in this province has a history, you know, as does Canada, of, of many of our women uh, politicians, women leaders getting um, more, I think, a negative feedback from the public than their male counterparts so I'm going to keep this conversation going as a leader and as a woman leader in this community to say we want your feedback we really do and we I love debate and dialogue that's what a university is all about um, I do hope that the personal tax people take a second look at what they say and step back and say what is the impact on the people that I am? directing
1: us to. You're welcome back on this program. Very quickly, in preparation for the uh, 2025 Canada Summer Games, Morley University will indeed be the Athletes' Village. The new track and field and turf uh, complex is going to be where the old track was, coincidentally, in front of the aquarina. What role does the government play? Who owns and operates and maintains that facility? Is that the city afterwards or is the university?
3: So that isn't resolved yet. Okay. Um, there is a, a request from the city that the university Operate it. We are going to be putting together a business plan and looking at the viability of that. You know, uh, budgets are tight, it's a challenging time. Soccer team would love to have it here, our athletics. Uh, would love to have it here our kinesiology faculty would love the university to have it and operate it um, but i have we have to be careful and look at a concrete business plan and what that impact is fiscally for the university but we're really excited about the Can games and the 100th anniversary of memorial university of newfoundland labrador 2025 is going to be a fabulous year patty
1: appreciate the time this morning thank you very much
3: Thank you so much. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Vianne Timmons. She's the president of Immoral University. Let's take a break. Tom and Mary, appreciate your patience. You're up after this. Don't go away.
0: Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Tom, you're on the air.
1: Good morning, Patty.
0: Morning.
6: I wanted to start with... uh, Just a quick bit of education. In Canada between 1990 and 2018, uh, the purchase of SUVs and pickup trucks and vans rose by 280% in Canada. And there were 81% of the sales between January and September of 21. And, you know, this is a big thing in Newfoundland and Labrador, obviously, and this is where people can make a difference. They require more resources to build and they emit more greenhouse gases. And since 1990, emissions rose by 156% just because of the difference in the vehicle choices. In other words, if we'd all kept smaller cars, we would have burned 156% less. Uh, 42% of greenhouse gases in New- Newfoundland is from transportation. And um, and, a, and a larger vehicle burns 31%, creates 31% more greenhouse gases per kilometer. And the other thing to realize is as we do electrify, which, which seems pretty apparent that is happening, um, replacing our SUVs and trucks with electric version will take 20% more resources than just having an EV car, and and and, and significantly more uh, rare earth materials and stuff like that to create the batteries. The other thing to bear in mind with the larger vehicles is accidents are more frequent in a heavier vehicle. The outcomes are more serious, especially when it comes to pedestrian vehicle accidents. But even vehicle to vehicle accidents, larger vehicles have there's more consequences. They also take up more space in parking traffic congestion so traffic is worse the longer and bigger vehicle is the more the less space roads can hold they also have an increased weight um, and that prematurely ages our roads but also the evs which are now you know up to 35 percent heavier because of the batteries that will significantly increase that damage to roads so you know all things we all need to try and figure out what the future looks like and you know, if you travel to Asia and Europe and place like that, you realize they just don't have vehicles. I mean, you don't see an F one fifty, let alone a two hundred fifty or a three fifty, if you travel to a lot of the countries um that are have a much lower greenhouse gas footprint than we do in the fly library. Okay. Okay, I just want to put that out there. Um Mayor Breen was on last week with you and uh, I noticed that Paradise just dropped their budget, and in it they say, you know, the cost of everything has gone up, and that's going to include taxes. It's interesting how they negotiate their collective agreements prior to doing their budget. I guess you argue they kind of have to, but they don't seem to acknowledge that very much when it comes to um, why they have to put things up. And and Mayor Breen said the city is experiencing the same inflation as everyone else. Streets have to be plowed, buses have to run. However, what's lost in that, it's kind of like when, Chris, when Minister Freedom was on and she talked about her family sitting around the kitchen table talking about having to cut their Disney Plus. You know, what's lost in that conversation is that around that council table, the our, our senior bureaucrats. Well, first of all, the councils are all getting raises, but the senior bureaucrats who uh, aren't worrying. You know, if they're having a conversation about Disney Plus, they'd be just as disingenuous. The city is going to go from two employees making over two hundred thousand to eight by the time. The round of wage increases, which they just announced, worked their way through, and and I didn't hear that conversation about um, being frugal with their money when they increased the cost of the new Muse Center by thirty seven point five percent, from twenty four million to thirty three million. Now they'll say that's because of the gas tax, but the reality is the city can use the gas tax for whatever they want, including not increasing taxes. And uh, the median income in Newfoundland Labrador is $38,600. And when taxes go up, either directly because they increase the mill rate, or indirectly because the, cost, the value of your home goes up as they reassess, um, this is going to have a major effect on people who cannot afford all these increased costs. And again, the people at the city of St. John's, you know, they'll talk about their base pay, but what's lost in the conversation, and you cannot get it, is how much the overtime adds up to be. Last year in the budget con- you know, budget speech, they said they were working with the firefighters to try and work on their overtime. I've heard, I've heard nothing about that. And to put it in perspective, the 11% raise that they just agreed with their employees, which most likely will go through the other bargaining units, uh, firefighters, NAEP, um, and automatically goes up the line to all the senior bureaucrats and people who are not part of a bargaining unit, will cost – I estimate around $27 million over four years, although it's difficult to get it because the city doesn't put how much they spend on payroll anywhere that you can find. And, and also to overlay on top of that, the total building permits up to the summer of this year were down 47%. And so you know, if you're sitting around the council table of the city, which is obviously the most prosperous part of our country, our province, sorry, let alone any other council table, you guys need to be making difficult choices when you talk about reducing services. I mean, we all need to try and get in the same boat somehow and try and figure out how we keep people from freezing to death or starving in their homes.
1: Look, I suppose I know as, as best as anybody about the stories that we hear and the pressures that people are feeling, and if anyone needed support in 2019 for some of the basics and the necessities of life, if that number was it was 100,000, well, it's 200,000. So where do we go from here? Boy, because some of these things are completely out of our control. So people will look to, the, for instance, the provincial government to offer some assistance and some relief, but how many levers do they actually have available to pull on? I'm not so sure they have as many as people would like. To. But anyway, I'll let you continue on before I run out of time. Go ahead, sir. Thank you, Chair.
6: So, and that leads me to the next point. The government is not a provincial government, municipal governments, federal governments. They aren't some magic people with money trees that they harvest every night when we go to bed. That's us. It's the taxpayers, and we need to. When someone talks about when a when a union talks about the employer, or when someone is on the radio asking for more money from the government, really what they're saying is, "Hello, everybody in the province or in the municipality." We want you all to take money out of your probably non-existent savings or somehow generate more money. And it's got to be not lost in the conversation. And you know, I want to bring this back to who is responsible for people in this province. I hear people on this station and other places talk about how government is responsible for us. Well, they're not. We're responsible for ourselves first, our families second And then our community's
1: third. Right. I mean, government's not here to save your life. But where do you suggest people turn when they've run out of options? Because some of the immediacy of the concerns people have, there's no other place they can turn beyond the different levels of government for support or not-for-profits or charities or what have you. Because turning things around, fiscally speaking, inside your own home is easier said than done, number one. And it takes time. So where do, you discuss, where do you suggest people turn for help? Because, you know, the concept of the social safety net and the associated societal responsibility and the cost savings afforded to helping people who are left behind, falling through the cracks, hard done by, if you factor in all of the individual responsibility with associated costs, if we, don't, if we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to them, we're worse off in the long run. So where do you think people should turn when they need some help?
6: Well, I think you're right. There are people who, through no fault of their own, they don't have the ability to lift themselves up. They don't have family who can help them. And when that happens, that's what we that's when we all, all the generous Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be called upon to act. There's no debate. However, you and I have been having these conversations for two years and eight months. And two years and eight months ago in March, it was dire. And now we're where we are now. And People need to realize, unfortunately, if you're not trying to get more educated or if you're not trying to get your fiscal house in order, whether you're a government, a business, or an individual or a family, then it is not going to get any better. And and if I accumulate assets or if I'm blessed enough to accumulate assets over my lifetime, those assets sh- should be used to look after me in my old age. If I have a home, I shouldn't transfer it to my children five years before I need to go into a home so they get the benefit of my assets. I shouldn't organize my affairs so that the taxpayer has to pay for me as I get older. If my children, so I looked after my children until they were however old and helped them with school and did everything I did, I shouldn't get to waste my money on SUVs, larger homes, summer homes, side by sides, exotic trips, visits to local coffee, coffee shop all day, restaurants, and then expect the taxpayer to look after my parents when they get older. Like there needs to be a connection in this province between entitlement to which you're entitled to look after yourself and look after your families, and somehow we have to connect the dots. But that doesn't mean we ignore the people who really need our help. Like there's there's a lot of people who really need our help, and I'm just as sensitive to that as everybody else. But there's a lot of people who are boiling like frogs every day. You know, if you need to get your GED, go get your GED. If you know, you're not you will not be able to survive in the future unless you at least one person in your family is working towards having some sort of trade or profession. And we all need to come together and figure all that out. It like it is only getting worse it's not going to get better and
1: and but at some point caring for seniors though also becomes absolutely the responsibility of the government because like for instance if I had to try to take in leave me out of the conversation if a family of four with two young children and already stressed financially to the brink and needs to all of a sudden be fully and 100% responsible for senior care when we have complex medical uh, issues in play and stuff. How do we remove the fact that these people have also worked their entire life and also have contributed to society and have paid their taxes and now their medical needs are unable to take care of themselves or they can't get the required home support? How can we possibly say, well, too bad, and or it's your family's responsibility, not mine, because I have my own concerns as a taxpayer?
6: Well, it isn't about too bad, but... You know, when do we roll it back to the fact that we accumulated forty-seven billion dollars in debt in this province? So nobody, nobody saves money to look after themselves in the future. But there's a big difference in you know, us having houses that are too big and vehicles that are too big, and all the waste we had, and all of a sudden poor, crime, poor mouth. Now, this is not the people who are seniors right now because a lot of them didn't do it, um, especially if they're older. But but there's a big gap. Between the lifestyles that we feel entitled to, or that somehow we feel like everybody deserves to live like a millionaire, and then all of a sudden, in the you know not that long ago, the youngest son, just to be stereotypical, would get the family home, and as a deal, he would end up with the parents of him now, at some point, those parents could no longer live. but I spoke to a, a, a public servant a couple of days ago who's retiring at fifty five her father worked till seventy five he's ninety, and his, her mother's like eighty five or eighty six they're still living in their own home and doing fine. Like, there's a big disconnect between her checking out at 55 and then probably living to be 90 as well and expecting, the, again, the taxpayer to cover her off till she lives that long. I mean, that that's just the system right now is so disabuberated. But getting back to your point, we have to figure out how, because it's not sustainable. Anything that's not sustainable is only going to fall apart. Like, it's, you know, we're going to just break down to the point that, that there's just nothing left for everybody. There's a gap between what we spend our money on and and our responsibility to our family and to ourselves, our own personal selves. And we need to somehow reconnect with that. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I mean, it's not simple. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. But, you know, when all you hear is, you know, you look at people who live very, very well, who have, you know, a great standard of living, and then they expect their parents, for example, to be looked after totally by the taxpayer, not by the magical government, not by Eastern Health, by the taxpayer. And until we boil everything down to the fact, and, and in many cases, there's no money left over for, for, for their retirement. I'm not even thinking about what happens to them, because realistically, if we do that and we don't make changes in the way we run this province, and I, I know it's bigger than this province, but the only thing we can influence is the province, then there is no future. And, and it's, it is that blatantly simple, but yet complicated at the same time.
1: Thanks for this, Tom. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. All right, break time. Mary, thanks for sticking around. She wants to talk about home heating fuel. And then Steve wants to talk about Bill C71. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line three. Mary, you're on the air.
7: Hi, Patty. Hi. Good morning. Morning to you. Yes, I was calling in about uh, this. Uh, what I was going so high now, and uh, I lived in Newfoundland, Labrador housing unit, and all uh, we got started back in 2010. I got the letter here now, like, and I only get to, like. $1,245 from November to the next November like to give you the nights once a year then like just fill up your tank and then and it goes down do you'll top it up until it's gone. Mm-hmm. So until this past few months like I had no problem with it but like last year I actually ran out of all in April my tank was on empty. And now I'm wondering what I qualify for this heating rebate because, and even in Housing, well, where we get our all, like, give to us by Newfoundland Alberta Housing, we did not qualify for this heating rebate, like that people get.
1: That's right, you did not.
7: No, and I was wondering that, like, okay, I had to buy all October past, so then I found that November the third of this year, I got all, so I called my. All provider, and they told me, like, I don't have any more all subsidy left, that's it. So now I gotta buy all the rest of the winter. And I was wondering, would I qualify now? Like, I'd like to get a, a number that I could call and see if I could qualify, because if not, I'm gonna have a cold winter. <laughs>
1: Like a lot of people. So, what exactly can we try to help you out with or point you in what direction this morning? What, what are you asking me to help you with, Mary?
7: I'd like to have a number to call to, to see, to explain, like I could just explained to you, and just see if I could qualify for this eating subsidy.
1: Okay, I can probably get your number, but I don't think because of the fact that it is actually the uh, government's. Responsibility, I don't think you qualify for it, but I'll get your number here. One second,
7: okay. But I believe, Patty, the deadline for an application was November the 30th. It was, yes.
1: Oh, that much is absolutely true. Uh, that the one, okay. Home heating supplement. I see if there's a contact number here, but you might have already missed the boat considering the fact that it has come and gone. But take this number down, this goes directly to the department which is administering the home heating supplement program at 729. 729 46
7: 46 45 45 Yep It's petty to The hall is not Counting to the roof Now it's counting to the sky
1: Absolutely it has there's, Do you use email Mary?
7: Uh, no I don't
1: Okay Because there's an easy Email address Sometimes that's a bit More helpful But give that number A shout if you have No luck with it Or you want to Fill me in on what Happens Give me a call back I will Thanks Mary Thank you All the best Bye Okay bye bye Alright let's keep Rolling here Line number two Steve you're on the air hey
8: Patty, good morning how are you great you good i uh, just wanted to put my input into the uh, new bill c21 that's going forward there i know you can have some conversations about it yep uh i think it's crazy what's going on actually uh It seems like the the vocal minority lately in society seems to be taking over a whole lot of the conversations. And I I think pretty much that that people have to speak up and reach out to their MPs and stuff in Ottawa and just tell them their displeasure and and make their views known on what's going on with this whole gun registration or the new amendments to the Act.
1: Yeah, I mean, prior to the late addition of these amendments, the vocal majority of Canadians are in favour of enhanced gun control, and they long have been. Absolutely,
8: myself included, and and I mean, you obviously, you have to have some control over. It, but I mean, in the past, some of the some of the means that the government has taken to do this hasn't worked. I mean, they had the failed gun registry a few years ago. They spent billions on it, uh, and then I mean, it was scrapped a little not long after that. It lasted a couple of years. But uh, some of the specific amendments that they made recently in this that people are I mean, you spoke with Bazan, uh, I forget his first name. In the end of last week. Andrew. Papers. Uh, Andrew Bazan, yeah, and I know some of the some of his comments were a little bit confusing to yourself, I guess, not being familiar with the whole situation. But uh, just just to speak from my experience, I own five guns three of those are going to be illegal if these amendments pass. So I know you said uh, there in your preamble, you reached out to some of your uh, gun-owning friends and stuff, and they were giving you some information on it. But just for an example, I own uh, two guns of the exact same caliber, the same manufacturer, the same model, but one of them has a detachable magazine. So for those who aren't familiar, that's the little box on the bottom of the rifle where you store where you put your ammunition. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, are you?
1: I am. And I've spoken to it, and you know, whether it be removable cartridge, that can hold up to five rounds and even if you don't have a cartridge on your weapon but it can accommodate a bigger cartridge that weapon is going to be confiscated including one from a guy I know who has a relic collector's piece and that is going to be on the band list even though it hasn't absolutely. been shot in decades so I've, yeah, tried, I've tried to understand to the point where I think they've got to revisit it because if there are firearms, uh, one by this manufacturer, one by another, they're the exact same in reality with the jewels of power and capacity and magazines and everything else, but one is banned and one is not. That's all anybody needs to know. You can be in full favor of gun control legislation, but it's got to make sense. Now, some of the rhetoric that goes all the way to no one's ever going to be allowed to hunt again, that's foolish, right? But absolutely just put weapons on the list that is about public safety now of course there's always going to be a law-abiding gun owner who is exactly that until they're not but the fact that you're using this firearm versus that one they're the exact same thing then they either both belong on the list or they both belong off the list
8: yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. So, but, I mean, just to go back to the point of, the, of those two guns, they're the exact same gun. They hold the same number of boats, One is illegal, one is not. So, I mean, it just goes to show that the people that are making the rules don't really, they're not familiar, they haven't familiarised themselves with what they're talking about. And, I mean, when it comes to, when it comes to the enforcement, I mean... I mean, society's, society's become so politically correct that we're afraid to speak out and, and say stuff that makes kind of sense. That's my opinion, anyway. You might disagree with me. But, I mean, to say that the guns are the cause of, of violence and that violence is going to stop if you ban guns, it's not. People are going to find another way to, to create violence. I mean, if you want to take it one step further, you can ban every single gun in the world. Uh, are they going to ban 3D printers next? I mean, locally, you're familiar with the uh, RNC investigation that was just completed in, uh, they did they raided a home in Flat Rock, and there was dozens of handguns that were printed with 3D printers. This has nothing to do with guns. You can ban all the guns in the world. If they don't ban 3D printers, gun violence is still going to continue. So, so, I mean, you've got to take an overall, a, a greater look at what's causing the violence, how to stop the violence, and not say that by banning gun A versus gun B that it's going to happen.
1: I've already conceded and, that. Point, but fewer, yeah, yeah, if, that, if, that, if at the effect, end of the day, Steve, it, uh, if at the end of the day there are fewer guns, there is every piece of evidence that anybody would ever want. People will always say, Well, you know, uh, violence uh, rates of violence didn't go down, and deaths, whatever numbers may be, it, it may indeed be the case. But if, for instance, there wasn't a weapon in the hands of Lapine uh, on December the 6th, of 1989, there would not have been uh, 14 people ma- maimed in one entry by. A criminal. So, look, we've conceded the issue that the list has to make sense. It has to be based in fact. It can't be based in emotion and feel. Just because something looks a certain way doesn't mean it's most the most dangerous thing that must be addressed, even though we also know that some of the so-called quote-unquote scariest-looking weapons have been the weapons of choice for a lot of the criminals for a variety of reasons, and some of them are quite obvious. So I think the, uh, the liberals have to go back to the drawing board here. I think there's just too much confusion and too much contradiction Victory overlap as to what's banned and what's allowed, and on top of that, if this is going to be through a buyback program, why are we going to be buying back weapons that are the exact same ones that people are allowed to uh, still have? So this is a couple of things: it's about logic, it's about documents, it's about fact, and it's about money.
8: Yeah, absolutely, it, I, I agree with you 100. percent But I mean, to be even talking about a buyback program at this point, I think is 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 getting the, putting the cart ahead of the horse. I mean, we need to do, we need to figure out. The government needs to figure out do these rules make sense? And I'm not saying you didn't already say this, you did. I just wanted to get my opinion out there because, as I said, that it seems like. If we don't say something now, and if we don't say something now, then will this rule go through? And in six months, I'm going to be saying, "Geez, I should open my mouth." Like I, I just think that the general public who's against these amendments, and, and none of us, myself included, none of us hunters are in favor of violence. I mean, that I, I shouldn't even have to say that, but apparently I do. And just to, use an, just to use an example, if you got just a minute, Patty, I know I'm taking up a little bit of your time. Oh, go right It's a very important issue. That's right. Yes. So, so I, I just think that for the people who aren't saying anything, and myself included, I'm not a political person. I like I love to hunt, and I've got. different Views on different topics that I usually just stay silent about, but when it comes to the point where the minority becomes very vocal, I mean the seal hunt is a prime example, right? I mean, a very small percentage of the people in the world could care less about the seal hunt, but the few that do, I mean, and I'm not trying to correlate the two. I mean, gun violence. Is
1: seal Understood. Hunt.
8: But yeah, but just for an example, just for an example of of how how the minority can blow things totally out of proportion. Uh, you follow hockey, so here's a great example. Carey Price is an avid hunter. So last night, have you, I don't know if you've seen his Instagram post. I have. Okay, so I'm just going to read it. It's very short. So Kerry Price posted on his Instagram page last night, I love my family, I love my country, I care for my neighbor. I'm not a criminal or a threat to society. Justin Trudeau is trying to do is unjust. I support the CFFRA to keep my hunting tools. Thank you for listening to my opinion. So in the last 24 hours, the Montreal Canadiens have basically disowned themselves from Kerry Price. They've said that he is supporting an organization that didn't take a stand against the uh, E.C.O. Polytechnique massacre. So I understand where they're coming from because this organization made the very poor taste to use a promo code on one of their websites of Poly, P-O-L-Y, as a discount code. I have no idea what they were thinking. And again, this just adds to the anti-gun people's argument That was in poor taste But Kerry Price was four, year old, was four years old When the massacre happened in Montreal Maybe he didn't know about it Apparently that seems to be the case Do you and think that that's actually cold.
1: possible Steve Do you think we're affording him a benefit of the doubt That seems a little bit flimsy to me Played and lived I, in Montreal And every year this is a massive big deal Especially in Montreal
8: Absolutely, absolutely. And I find it very hard to believe that he doesn't know about it. I do find it possible to know that this gun organization had used the promo code poly. I think it's possible he didn't know that because, I mean, I didn't, and I'm following this closely. But, yes, I mean, there's no doubt he knows about the the massacre, and there's no doubt that Kerry Price doesn't support the massacre. I mean, come on, let's get real, right? Of course, So I had the the conversation with, with one of my friends. He's my age. He's 50 years old, and we were talking about this this morning. And he, believe it or not, and it's sad, but he did not know anything about the massacre in Montreal. So, I, no, no, he doesn't live in Montreal. In Montreal, this is a huge big deal. This is kind of getting off topic. But the fact that that the anti-gun people are saying Carey Price is not against this massacre, like, it's insane. So, I, anyway, I just, just to get back to the topic, I just think that these amendments need to be spoken out against by people who don't normally speak out, and that goes right from making a call to our local Liberal MP, uh, Seamus O'Regan, to write a letter to the Prime Minister, because if we don't, as we've seen in the past, these these things can have a way of slipping through, and it's a slippery slope. So it's semi-automatic guns today. Okay, it's a gun that takes two bullets, whether it's semi-automatic tomorrow. like it, it just That's my opinion, anyway. So I'm actually... Uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to give my number out of the phone. I'm not one for organizing... Uh, I don't want to call it a protest, because that's probably the wrong word. I mean... But uh, if, if anyone's interested in maybe getting a little demonstration together at Seamus O'Regan's office, like, I don't organize these things normally, but if no one else does it, I think someone ha- has to take a stand. So I'll leave my number. And as well, uh, myself and my nine-year-old son have a, have a, a YouTube channel as well as an uh, Instagram page. It's mostly hunting and fishing stuff that we do together. And uh, like I'm trying to bring him up right and show him the safe use of all these, these things. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can do it through angling and arrows on Instagram or YouTube, or they can also just shoot me to extra and if there's enough interest and if some of these hunting groups like uh, Andrew Bazan want to get involved like I think that we should maybe get a few people together and just have a just a friendly uh I don't know what you want to call it, like an information gathering, so that we can just show that, you know, Seamus Sirigan needs to stand up and, and listen to his constituents and some of these rules don't make sense right now. And we're all in favor if they want to sit down with, with any common Joe Hunter like myself, or a common gun owner who abides by all the rules, and we can inform them with how this is going to affect us personally, like I'd be happy to do it or they I mean, reach out to Andrew Bazan, he's the professional in this field, and uh, just get their opinion so they know what they're talking about, because obviously some of the people making these rules don't
1: and the protest uh, the opportunity to do so is absolutely alright and there is nothing wrong with it last point and then I really got to go is when people say Kerry Price doesn't care about the massacre is exactly why the gun control conversation is just so patently stupid sometimes it's just like the other side of the coin where people say well at some point we'll be uh, without weapons and we won't be able to fight back as if they're implying directly that they're willing to get into a firefight with the RCMP or the Canadian military both sides of that conversation are just so stupid that we should tune that out and get down to the Brass tacks about what's actually happening, what what should happen, and where the facts lie, as opposed to the hyperbole that ruins the conversation so very often. But I've enjoyed speaking with you this morning, Steve. I'm glad you called.
8: One more quick comment on that. I know you said that several times about you know the bringing up like you know people are saying it's going to remove our right to fight back and stuff. Yep. A uh, little different in Canada, and the United States. The United States, that argument is made quite a bit. I don't know if I've ever heard that made in Canada. So even to bring it up, like kind of it, it kind of just opens like it kind of opens up a topic that I don't think even in Canada that's where this conversation is going. It happens on social
1: media. It happens in my email inbox, Steve. I have no reason I can send you a screenshot of my social media feed with people saying exactly that. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? What are you actually talking about? You know, that's where the American psyche bleeds up over our southern border and it becomes part of the political discourse albeit completely unfounded and ill-advised and semi-ridiculous but it does bleed into the conversation. The point was, the folks who say Kerry Price does care are as ridiculous as the folks who make that argument. 100%.
8: I'll, g- I'll, g- I'll give you that one.
1: <laughs> I appreciate the time, Steve. Off I go. All right, Patty. Appreciate Thanks, man. I'll, I'll leave my number I'll leave my number with your producer there just in case or I can give it to you now, whatever the case. Well, we got it. He has your number on our screen, so yeah, it's the one that ends for, in six anybody? zero.
8: Absolutely. If anybody wants to reach out and be part of uh, Get Together, let me know and I'll see what I can do or I'll touch base with some of the organizations here and get something on to go.
1: Appreciate the time. Thanks for your time, Patty. Hey Thank you too, Steve. Bye-bye. All right. Break time. Don't go away.
0: Got plans for midnight bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere the VOCM all-night show midnight on your VOCM And welcome back to the show. Let's go
1: to line number one Tracy you're on the air
9: Hi, how are you?
1: Okay, thanks. How about you?
9: Good. Thank you. I am a first-time caller, but I'm calling to ask you a question you had a lady on last week or the week before She lived around the bay and she said in a biscuit house that had oil heat that uh, she said was very expensive. And this Christmas she couldn't afford to do her baking.
1: Yes, I I do remember the call. Uh,
9: (laughs) I'd like to send her some money so she can do her baking for the community.
1: Now, I'm going to have to go back through call sheets because I I certainly don't remember any of her contact information. But what we'll have to do, Tracy, is we'll have a look through the call sheets of the recent past and see if we can identify exactly who that is. And when we find the name and the number, I will connect the both of you so that you can help her put some baked goods on the Christmas table. How's that?
9: that would be wonderful because I've been thinking about her ever since
1: yeah I get those things stuck in my head I tell you for days and weeks and months on end so David can you possibly have a surf through and see if we can find who that person was she was was
9: quite witty
1: oh I remember the call yeah she was a grand laugh
9: yes she was quite witty about it all though Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let me see if I can figure it out uh, sooner than later, Tracy. uh, Myself and Dave Williams will pour through the call sheets, and we'll see if we can get get her number for you.
9: Okay, and he has my number, so he'll call me or he'll give it to me? Yeah, as as soon as
1: we can figure this out, we'll be sure to pass along the info.
9: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome, Tracy. That's
9: all I wanted. Have a good day.
1: Same to you, and thanks for doing this.
9: Okay, thank you.
1: All right, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I can't remember violet comes to mind, but I'm not sure that's right. Uh, let's keep going. Line number four, Brad, you're on the air.
4: Hello, Patty. Hi. Uh, sorry for taking you off course here.
1: Uh, no, anything is up, everything's up for discussion. Go ahead.
4: Uh, okay, on Thursday, I went to a, a used uh, bank machine, and it's, it's my bank card that I use on the bank machine. I go there so you don't get charged your funds. So it's a PC machine, and I went in, and I tried to take money out, and it come up error, and it spit the card back out, so I tried it again, and it come up error. and I took the card back out, and the lady was watching me. She came over, and she said, I was just watching you, because two people had trouble before that, but they didn't have PC card. You do. Now I know there's a problem with the machine, so she called someone, and right away they said, yes, we, we know that there was someone there, and they lost their money. It shows they gave me the money, but I never did receive it, so now I'm since Thursday trying to fight with them, and now they gave it to me on Saturday, then they took it back, and they charged me now a $59.98 fee for investigating it, and I can't get a hold of anybody there. I'm after trying so many people.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's an ombudsman for the banking industry in the country. I don't know if you've gone to that length to file a complaint or a concern with them because if you're dealing directly with the bank, we hear this all the time, it's a long, arduous process before head office makes any determination about removing a fee, removing a penalty, removing a fine, or whatever the appropriate word is. But there is a place to uh, file an official complaint with the banking ombudsman of Canada. It is? There is, yeah.
4: Would uh, your people have that number? Yes, I can get anything.
1: (laughs) Uh, Sugar. I'm not a very good typer, though. Mm -hmm -hmm. All right. The Bank of Ombudsman of Canada submits a complaint inquiry. There's also an easy email, or pardon me, uh, uh, website address, which is just OBSI.ca, but there's got to be some easy contact information right here all right let's see here for consumers okay i got a number okay one triple eight yep four five one okay 4519 4519 that's the ombudsman for banking services and investments canada
4: okay all right i really appreciate it
1: no problem let me know how it works out Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, we're going to Wabush. Tina's there to talk about the no guidance counselor at our kids' school. They're having a hard time finding substitute teachers. And we know the recommendation to change the... Uh, numbers of guidance counselors to the numbers of students is well over a decade old. Currently it's about one guidance counselor for 500 students when the recommendation from, like I said, at least 10 years ago was to make that number more like one guidance counselor to 333 students. Nothing's changed. Tina's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Tina, you're on the
0: air.
10: Good morning, Patty. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for letting me uh, use up some of your time this morning. There's a couple issues I'd like to raise. Um, First of all, um, I'd like to bring up um, about our school here in Wabush. It's JRS Smallwood. It's actually the school I graduated from. Um, I I know that um, this is the second year now for that school not having a guidance counsellor at all. Um, Last year, there was no guidance counsellor. And this year, um, I know for me, my son asked to speak to a guidance counsellor on November 2nd. And, um, he never got to see the virtual guidance counselor until November 14th. Um, now for, for my kid in, in my situation, um, well, we've been through some stuff and, um, I sent my son to counseling and mental health for coping skills. So, um, when he feels like he needs to talk about something then he has to speak to the guidance counselor so to me that's a very healthy way to cope with things and um anyways last year um while i'm on this council so um, I had brought this forward many times that there was no guidance counselor, and the only thing that I was told was that uh, nobody wanted to come here because it was so expensive for them to find somewhere to live but uh, this year that's not the case because I've also been told that uh, there's uh, three apartment buildings over into a teacher's apartment building in Lab City and um, there is somewhere for the teacher to live or the guidance counselor. So um, now this year they have a virtual guidance counselor, um, which is also unacceptable. Like who wants to go online and talk to someone like it's so impersonal and, and it's just wrong. Like, Why are we going that way with mental health? I mean, it could be anybody's child. Like, what if a child was being not fed at home or um, beaten or molested, and they finally got off the nerve to tell somebody, and they asked to speak to the guidance counselor, and there is none. Or they got to wait two weeks. Like, it's just a very unfortunate situation. It's unacceptable. I've reached out to the minister's as the Minister of Education about this, and I have not received a response. It's been uh, about three or four weeks now. Um, so uh, that's my number one thing that I wanted to. T- that's num- actually that's just one of the things I wanted to talk about, but uh, it's a very important issue and um, in our education system and our young people. And I feel like um, mental health is such an important topic. And it's, it's so important. There's still so many people who think that they can't talk about mental health and they can't talk about their feelings and discuss them. And I I just feel like it's time now for our government to step up and place a guidance counselor. They may need some uh, incentives. Um, they may need extra, extra, extra incentives to get a guidance counselor here, but they're going to have to do this. It's, I mean, there was a guidance counselor in that school 30 years ago when I went there. Like we're going backwards in this situation.
1: I mean, I think you're 100% right in saying that, you know, and let's be honest, for some people who have uh, the credentials to be a guidance counselor or teacher or administrator, there are some parts of the province that they probably don't want to move to, whether it be the great unknowns, whether it be remote issues, whether it be away from friends and family. So creating or crafting a recruitment tool and incentive package is obviously got to be part and parcel with this because we talk at the beginning of the year about teacher vacancies. And the school that had the biggest concern was in Labrador for a bunch of reasons same thing with a guidance counselor now there's a bunch of different guidance counselor angles that I think about and talk about all the time but ensuring that a school has one is not as simple as putting an ad in the paper is it it's got to be more to it. whether it be attention to housing related matters and or remote pay you know some incentives whatever it is because going without is certainly not the answer
10: right Um, so now I'd like to discuss my other issue um, I'm having with the school right now um so, um, I was still kind of a little um, angry, um, I guess, about the guidance counselor situation. And um, on November twenty fifth, I sent my kid to school just like a normal day. And, um, anyways, after lunch, I get a call from the school saying that he had hurt his leg, and I I need to come and get him. And I said, okay. So when I, when I get him home, I say, so um, I said, so what did the teacher say, babe? Because he was there, like screaming in pain, and he said, well, the teacher wasn't there. I said, what do you mean the teacher wasn't there? And he said, well, she had to go to a doctor's appointment. I said, okay, cool. Well, what did the substitute say? He said, well, we didn't have a substitute. I said, what do you mean you didn't have a substitute? He said, well, there's a shortage of substitutes, Mom. I said, oh. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I was screaming, it's dislocated, it's dislocated. Call my mom. And one of the teachers came over and told me, well, it looks like a little mild bruise. And then another uh, employee came and he said call my mom call my mom and he said okay come with me we'll call your mom and he made him walk down two flights of stairs now now um, so I, I went and I brought him to the hospital so now this is another thing so so like um, any first aid course will tell you to call an ambulance right Yep. And, um, I'm not sure, like, if they have any first aid courses in JRS or um, I'm not really sure how that goes. But I'm, I think that a wheelchair lift could have been used, like, if he didn't want to physically lay his hands on him to help, like, a wheelchair a wheelchair lift could have been used to help him down the stairs. I mean, anyway, um, so Friday we go to, that was the 25th, Friday, we go to the Emerge and we're told that he needs to be sent out to go to St. John's right away because he needs an emergency surgery on his knee.
1: Yikes. And you never know whether that could have been avoided with some upfront, more timely care before surgery became the option. And even as someone who has had those types of procedures and I mean just take the, this for what it's worth sometimes that's a better solution than trying to just navigate it with some other whether it be physiotherapy or otherwise because a repair as opposed to a you know yeah. a, a attempt to repair sometimes is a little bit better and sometimes you're better off breaking something than uh, tearing something I also know that unfortunately from yeah. personal experience
10: but, but I got to finish the story because okay, just, go ahead. okay so um anyways um I go over and he. they tell me he needs emergency surgery, so I spend five thousand dollars on three plane tickets to fly to the Janeway. I get out to the Janeway and I'm told that um he he doesn't need a surgery because he had a bad X ray in Labrador because his leg wasn't straight in the X ray so the injury's looking different than what it actually is because of the bad X ray. So um so Sunday, so Friday he needs an, uh, a surgery, Saturday he doesn't, which is good. Um, Sunday he gets a new x-ray and they said that he had um, a minor break in his leg. And then Monday they tell me that uh, it was the growth plate that was making it look that way and really he had a dislocated knee. So it's it's the air ambulance situation. It's um, I had to like why, and then we were on the plane, and my my son looked at me and he said, Mom, Mom, I need I need to straighten my leg. I'm in pain. So I stand up on the plane, and then I get yelled at by the stewardess, like like I was being like hard to get along with, or a bad person, or someone who just wanted to cause a racket. But really, I was just trying to let him straighten out his leg, right? Now, I did get a hold of Provincial, and Provincial were the only people who dealt with me, and um, they were the only ones who actually cared about my complaint because I have messaged also the Minister of Education, the Minister of Health, the Premier, and the MHA about these things that happened, and nobody has gotten back to me.
1: Well, you know, sometimes that just makes bad situations worth, uh, worse right. when the silence becomes deafening because people have concerns. They're legitimate. You might not hear what you want to hear, but hearing that is better than hearing nothing.
10: Right. And that's just, this is where I'm to today. So now I'm here talking to you because my story needs to be told. And. Um, I feel like I've been disregarded as a person, and my son's situation is disregarded because I'm not getting any response from anybody, and it's unacceptable.
1: Hopefully this triggers some response uh, ASAP. Uh, It's time for the news, Tina, but I appreciate the time. Hope the young fellow's okay. Thank you so much. Take good care. You too. All right, bye-bye. Let's go and take that break for the newscast. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't
0: go away take a break join us weekdays from 12:30 to 1 p.m as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now it's all on the table during your vocm lunch break
1: welcome back to the program uh, eastern health's cl- a clinical chief of cardiac care is dr sean connors and he joins us on line number one dr connors you're on the air good morning patty good morning to you welcome to the program Thank you very much.
11: Patty, um, I wanted to call in, you know, uh, partly just for a follow-up. I know I was on with Tim about a month ago talking about what I think is one of the great health initiatives in this province. And that was this partnership or this memorandum of understanding with the Ottawa Heart Institute
1: yeah just for context, and to set this up, back in the spring, you were speaking out about the the backlog on the waitlist, two hundred early in the year, you had it down to about one hundred and fifty. I think the story, story is from May, saying you wanted to cut it to under one hundred people. Where are we on the waitlist before we get to our partnership with ottawa?
11: you know we 're making good progress in the waitlist, you know I think all areas of surgery and and, and other procedures that we offer have a waitlist that's kind of ballooned post-pandemic. But, you know, we've been working our way through it. We, uh, week by week and day by day, I think we're getting into slightly better shape. So we're, we hover 130 to 140 on our cardiac surgery waitlist these days. But, you know, as we emerge from the pandemic, Patty, you know, we, we tried to think of innovative ways that we might be able to get faster heart treatment to our patients. I mean, I wouldn't be happy if I was sitting around on a list and had to wait for a year, say, Covid or no Covid, I mean, you know, how can get my how can I get my treatment sooner? And we reached out to our friends and colleagues at the Ottawa Heart Institute, and you know, we came up with this—it's this really an innovative partnership where you know, we, they they did some clinical work here, they did some of our patients there. You know, we we collaborated with research and education. Like I would say, the tallest blade of, the cra- of grass in the country when it comes to heart institutes is the Ottawa Heart Institute. Like they're known for innovation. So pooling our our resources and and pooling our experience and going through that process, I've seen tremendous benefit for our heart patients here in this province.
1: A collaborative approach, especially with a renowned institute like the one in Ottawa, obviously has a lot of upside to it. Speak to some examples or specifics about how that has benefited cardiac patients here.
11: Well, let me tell you, Patty, it's not all about sending patients out somewhere else. I mean, you you know, I don't like it uh, as much as my patients that they have to travel to get surgeries. But, you know, we kind of have three different types of patients, if you like, at the moment. We have patients that, that we send out, and we've done it about 50 times now, just to get them done quicker. I mean, patients off work, sitting at home, wondering about their surgery. So these are patients that we could definitely do here, and we are doing them here. But to get a double stream, if you like, of capacity, we'll send those people. Out and it's been tremendously successful. About fifty of our patients here in this province have had that done. We've had those surgeons. We've had five of their senior surgeons come down here, work in our ORs. They speak so highly of the teams that we have here: our nurses, our perfusionists, our administrators. You know, they, and and they've done about one hundred and twenty surgeons themselves traveling here to the patients here in Newfoundland, and of course. Each year, we do about 400 of our own with our own surgeons here. So it's this beautiful mix and blend of, of their experience and our experience and getting our patients done faster. It's like Canadians helping Canadians. It's been
1: a great initiative, Patty. How do you build on that to create what, I don't know, call it a collaborative center of excellence?
11: Well, Patty, look, sometimes I, I get a little bit criticized right about being too passionate. Like, I, I do talk a lot about heart disease in this province, but... You know, those of us who have never had heart disease yet, well, some, maybe we ignore it, but one in three of us are going to get it. And I spend a lot of time talking about heart disease, and I want you to get the best heart team you can get as fast as possible. So so I look forward to the future. Like we, This collaboration with Ottawa has been great, but how can we do better in the future? How can we build this innovation? Let's build the best heart team in the world. Well, you know what, I, I look at two things. I look at this health accord. I look at this uh, opportunity for a single provincial health authority. And I think that they're gonna allow us to be able to be a lot more cohesive in how we view and see the whole province. Like the health accord itself talked about alignment of specialty services. They talked about building infrastructure so that, that we can meet the demands of the population. Like you I mean, the single biggest disease in this province that affects Newfoundland and Labradorians is heart disease. And unfortunately, some people don't think about it until it's too late to have their heart attack. But I tell you, if they have that heart attack, they want good treatment and they want
1: it fast. This sounds like a very obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do one of the key focus areas in the health accord, being the social determinants of health, fall into the envelope of cardiac care?
11: Well, you know, that's a great point, Patty. And I know Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Parfrey, They really kind of educated all of us. I chaired the Hospital Services Committee, and we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, hospitals, uh, you know, they, they provide good care, but it's a minority of what determines your eventual healthy status and your health outcomes. A lot of it is the social determinants of health. But, you know, we're often so busy here in hospitals, we deal with you when you come in, but let's move upstream, let's go to promotion, let's go to prevention, let's build some infrastructure that allows us to see you before you have that heart attack. People do a great job sometimes of tuning me out when we talk about blood pressure, weight, diet, and so on. But, you know, I think we can do a better job there. I think that now with this ability to use the infrastructure created by the health accord, provincial health authority, let's build something that that allows us to move up there. I mean, it has to be better for the patient and better for the system if you can prevent a heart attack rather than be offering great treatment when they eventually get here.
1: What does that look like in realistic terms? Because we have a system that's very reactionary as opposed to more and more adoption of preventive medicine. So what does that look like? Give us an example for an individual who's graduating uh, from high school or is in their young 20s or starting their professional career or starting their family, how we get to them prior to them needing your eventual services on the operating table. What does that really actually look like?
11: You know, Patty, that involves changing culture, and I think one of the cornerstones, and this is pointed out in Health Accord, is that is that your primary care physician, these collaborative team clinics, and which is not just your family doctors, your dieticians, your physiotherapists, as nurse practitioners, and they need to, you know, have you in a conversation that talks about the things that sets you up to be at risk for heart disease or stroke. And you, you, know, you need to be able to avail the opportunities to address those other social terms of health, whether it be you're stopping smoking or an exercise program, uh, healthy diet and, and so on. We can't change these things overnight, but I think that we're starting to set ourselves up for the ability to have those conversations, to move upstream away from your heart attack. Like one of the challenges we have, Patty, is that no one ever thanks you for the heart attack they didn't have but they might complain about the pills and the exercise program and the weight loss you keep talking about. So it's a cultural change.
1: You know, even if the culture does change, which is a generational or an evolutionary thing, there's always gonna be the need for cardiac care. Early in the pandemic, we lost a couple of cardiac surgeons. Then I think there was another one on the way out when you were quoted in the news story in May. There was the thought that the head of cardiology at Calgary, in Calgary, pardon me, was coming on board. How many surgeons are on the roster and what's the full complement?
11: Well, Patty, we have four of our full complement. So we have three wonderful surgeons here operating in-house. As I said, you know, they're doing four to 500 surgeries here among three of them. Um, our fourth surgeon, now, to be honest, we, have, we haven't been challenged as much in terms of recruitment and retention as you hear about other programs. We've got some wonderful senior surgeons that that, that have expressed direct interest to me saying Newfoundland is a huge, is, is, is a, such a compelling place to work. We love the teams, we love the people. They say, Sean, look, there's there's cardiac surgery jobs around the country, but probably none as attractive as a job that would involve coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. So so we have three. That fourth position right now, well, we have these surgeons, senior surgeons model that come down. So it's a wonderful relationship. Would we like to hire someone else? Absolutely. But Patty, you know, when you want to attract the best, the absolute best, because I think our patients right here deserve the best, I think you also have to have infrastructure. I look at, I look at what's been announced recently with St. Clair's, and with the emergency room innovation, renovation, sorry. The you know it allows us to align specialty services with appropriate infrastructure. Like you know, the last time that we were able to align services, I don't know, in the 70s, the health sciences was built. So you know, we've moved a long way in the last 50 years in how we deliver treatment, and I think the. It shouldn't be underestimated how important it is to to design that canvas, to design that infrastructure to attract the very best. I tell you, you know, these cardiac surgeons that I've been talking to when they come here, they're all working currently in state-of-the-art places with new cardiac surgery ORs. They're offering innovation through tiny incisions, minimally invasive, they're getting their patients home faster. Why can't we offer the same thing here? You know, um, and and the other thing is that cardiac care is more than just cardiac. Sometimes it's cardiovascular care. Sometimes it's stroke. Like these patients all have a huge urgency attached to them. Like, And I think what goes through their mind if they have one of these diseases is I want great treatment and I want it now. So so I'm excited. I don't know how it's going to unfold yet with the new emergency room and the new St. Clair's. But I, I know that I get asked regularly about you know if I come to Newfoundland and I'm very attracted about coming to Newfoundland. I mean, what kind of services, what kind of infrastructure do you have there? So although I'm not involved in the planning of those sites, I can see how important that is to get the very best to come here to work on our patients here in Newfoundland.
1: And I believe the person with the toughest job in the province is Dr. Megan Hayes, the new deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention. You see that they're eager to come, but with the infrastructure not in place quite yet, because building a replacement for St. Clair's and or modernizing and expanding the emergency room at the health, at the health sciences takes time. We not only talk about money here, but there's a lot more that the province has to offer. But in the concept of work-life balance and how many procedures that each surgeon is taking on, How important is it to find that balance because for some people money is the be-all and end-all. For many others, it's not the starting point. It's whether or not they have the amenities, the training, the infrastructure, the modern uh, operating theaters, and whatever else comes with work-life balance. How do you cast that message to hit the sweet spot because it's not easily done?
11: Well, Patty, you know what? Um, As always, we'll drill right down onto the issue that – if someone said to me money was a be-all and end-all, I'm not interested in hiring them to be part of our heart team. What I will tell you is that, you know, so Dr. Mark Well, he's the chief of cardiac surgery at Ottawa Heart Institute. He flew out of here this morning. He's just been here for 11 days interacting with our teams, operating on some of our patients. And, you know, he, for him, this position where you have the ability to be involved in the planning of the infrastructure, how should it look like? Let's let's build a structure, say at St. Clair, that's going to We've been down there for 100 years. What does the next 50 years look like? It's so attractive to people at the cutting edge of, their, of what they do in their fields of expertise to be involved in innovation. Money is not the currency of their lives. What the currency of their lives is the ability to make a difference, be transformative, and to be innovative. And he told me this morning after our rounds, he told me that he can't think of another place on the continent, he said, in which there's as much innovation and transformation going on. So I think to the people that we would want here with our patients, that ability to make an impact means a lot, much more than money.
1: Dr. Connors, I appreciate the optimistic uh, outlook on the future cardiac care in the province and really appreciate making time for the program. It's good running into you.
11: Patty, thanks a million. And by the way, Maggie's doing great. She said
1: hello yes and hello back from me I gave her a shout out on Monday morning much and richly deserved Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sean Connors. He's the Clinical Chief of Cardiac Care at Eastern Health, and he made mention of Maggie. Maggie Connors, his daughter, is a senior at Princeton University. Lighten it up in the NCAA. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking reconciliation, cost of living, municipal operating grants, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Cape St. Francis. That's Jody Wall. Good morning, Jody. You're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? Good?
1: Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. How about you?
12: I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to do Before
1: a- we get going, Jody, if you could take us off speaker, that would be a great benefit to the listener.
12: My apologies. No but problem.
1: I- that sounds good.
12: Thank you for that, Patty. appreciate that. I want to call in this morning with respect to the cost of living for municipalities. So, you know, when we're looking at the cost of living crisis that we're going through now, municipal governments sometimes are, are left out of that uh, that discussion, but they are going through a crisis themselves. And uh, just for the benefit of your listeners, right now we're going through the budget. Uh, municipalities are going through budget processes, uh, you know, coming down to budgets for 2023. And according to the provincial legislation, they have to have balanced budgets. They cannot yep. run the deficit. So when you're looking at that, and Patty, as a former mayor, I, I sat through and was part of eight budget processes, and I can tell you wholeheartedly, it's not an easy process. It's it's difficult because every decision you're making uh, when you're when you're putting that forward that budget for a council to pass affects every member of, of, of your town or local service district or what have you. So it's it's an important process as it affects everybody. However, it's very difficult, and I, and being through that, I know the challenges that it takes. So right now we have municipalities who are coming down with their uh, with their budgets now, and and they're finding it difficult because of the cost of living that they are having to deal with. When you're looking at cost of fuel, if it's gas, diesel, or furnace oil, or the prices from contractors doing work in your towns, just right down to if you're doing some paving work uh, and the cost of asphalt. Um, another big line item uh, for those towns who have and local services, districts they have fire departments, are the operational costs to, to operate your fire department under uh, you know the the legislation that's that's in place and 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 it's just the cost of doing business. It's 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 increasing for municipalities as well. So it's a difficult time for budgets to, to come down and it's going to affect many people. Uh, what I'm looking at is I remember when I sat back in budget estimates uh, back in the spring when we looked at the municipal operating grant that the provincial government provides to municipalities. Uh, it's it hasn't it hasn't been increased in quite some some years uh, from my research. So It was 22 million dollars annually to municipal operating grant from the province to municipalities. That's given out, and it's based on different criteria: your your uh, amount of people in your town, your or your or your area, uh, what infrastructure you have. So it's it's based differently for every town. That municipal operating grant is crucial for. Uh, towns to 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 do their budgets, and there 's been no increase in that in, as I said uh, what I looked was seven years so when, when we 're looking at the cost of living increase uh, for municipalities, one thing that we can look at definitely and I brought it up to the minister back in, back in the spring was the increase in the municipal operating grant and that 's one thing that uh, that the province can look at with respect to municipalities who are struggling and who are you know they want to provide the services for their residents and it 's a very fine line when you have to uh, Uh, provide these services when when elected officials are making decisions, realizing individuals and the cost of living crisis that people are going through uh, in, in 2022.
1: You know, one of the big ones was the percentage of federal tax that gets afforded to municipalities, which is far too low. Then it's the concept of how much gas tax should flow to municipalities, and it's far too low. And then the province cut the provincial gas tax in half, which means we'll never see any move on that particular front, and it remains to be seen what moves are made when the carbon tax revenue uh, windfall goes by the wayside for the province, when the federal backstop kicks in next year. So there's a lot of moving parts there. The MOGs have never really quite made sense to me to be honest with you you know i know there's some some in some out but when municipalities very much unlike the provincial government and you're right as a former municipal leader the mayor puchkov the balanced budget is legislative requirement so putting a, again a further potential burden on ratepayers or taxpayers, property tax payers in the municipalities is kind of passing the buck. I mean, I know there's only one real pot. We're all taxpayers and we're all ratepayers. We can make the subtle differences based on where you live and how much you pay, you know, incorporated municipality, LSD, big city, small town, but we're all the same pool. So when you have very little nimble opportunities as a municipality, It's kind of always been curious to me that without the appropriate division or distribution of federal tax, gas tax, MOGs, we're really leaving it to the the groups that have the least amount of flexibility to make ends meet versus the ability to borrow at a much cheaper rate and without legislative requirement to deliver balanced budgets, we're making it tough in all the wrong places and doing it on purpose.
12: Uh, Patty, I couldn't agree more. There is only one path for taxation. I, I've said that previously and, I, and I'll repeat it. When you're looking at going to the well uh, time after time, it, it, it causes more problems. And I'll give you an example. I have, I have seniors in my district who I've known a lifetime. Who are in the process of selling their homes and moving out because they cannot afford to live in their homes any longer with the cost of living crisis that we're facing? They're they're looking at you know downsizing into a one bedroom apartment uh, for you know just just to make ends meet. When 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 you see that when when your boots are on the ground and when you see that face to face, that's when it, it hits home that we have a crisis here in in our province. And my district is no different from from any other of the 39. 39- districts districts in the province when you're looking at that. So we, we have to be mindful of that, no doubt. It, it's difficult for everybody, but I can tell you, with respect to government being needing to be creative and to work with municipalities, in order so, so, so that the buck is not passed on, to, you know, to the to the taxpayer. We need to have uh, some some creativity uh, to find ways to reduce the impacts of the cost, cost of living increases to all the constituents. And I know my my district is not uh, is not alone in this. I, I've spoken to to municipal leaders across the province, and uh, you know, it's 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 a difficult time. It really is, and. It pulls on the heartstrings when you're talking about people. You know, municipal leaders are the front line of defence for any issue. I've said that in the House of Assembly. I've said that in the council chambers here in Puducherry. And I can tell you, patty it's not getting any easier for the elected officials uh, who are who are operating uh, are running our councils and the decisions that they're making are very uh, are very difficult.
1: That they are, and you know, just a bit of a sidebar. But for for instance, in this case, seniors downsizing, maybe moving into an apartment or a condo setting, maybe preparing to move into a care home, whatever the case may be. Another issue the government has got to figure out sooner than later is the fact that so many of these people may indeed have their home, their family home, built on crown land, and unbeknownst to them, they don't own the land. Consequently, it's either pay the government for it uh, because the elimination of squatter's rights has made it a very expensive, timely issue with the quieting of titles and or paying the government the whatever estimated value of the land is. We've got to figure that out because before long, it's not just the diamonds in Catalina. It's going to be uh, uh, spattered all over the map because if you look at the map of Crown lands and try to guesstimate where actually people's personal, individual dwellings are built, we have got a problem that's only going to get massive in the days and weeks and months or years to come so on top of downsizing you got to figure out exactly what we're doing with, when it comes to crown Alliance. So i'll give you the last word
12: Exactly, Paddy. It, that issue is going to compound for sure. So I just wanted to get it out today and, and to and to basically applaud the municipal governments who are making these tough decisions. As I said, I've been there, I've been at the table, I've been part of the process, I know what they're going through. It's not easy. Um, but I just want to to recognise that today. Patty, before I go, I do want to give one shout out, and it's to Councillor Marion McCarthy in the town of Flat Rock. Uh, last night I had the opportunity to be with Mayor Darren Thorne, his full council and his complement of staff, to recognise 25 years of municipal service that Councillor McCarthy has given to the town of Flat Rock. So this is a, a definitely a highlight. It's not a very often that uh, the municipal councillors get to 25 year servicing, but I can tell you I've known Marion all my life. She's an awesome community volunteer. She gives so much of herself for the benefit of others and I just want to give a shout out to Councillor Marion McCarthy in the town of Flat Rock today for all that she does for the benefit of the residents.
1: And I echo that. Bravo, councillor. And there's a couple other examples. I wish I could remember the lady's name. She's in a small, smaller rural community. She's been 50-plus Years involved with municipal politics, and you throw in the Durham Flins of the world, and you know, people have put some massive effort in, and sometimes as volunteers, and taking on an absolutely full time demanding position.
12: It is, Patty. Thanks. And thanks so much for giving me the opportunity today. It's great to chat with you, and uh, and we'll be talking to you again soon.
1: Thanks, Jody. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Jody Wall, the PC member for Cape St. Francis. When we come back, the caller wanting to discuss reconciliation. We appreciate your patience. And then Brian wants to talk about guidance counsellors. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Uh, welcome
1: back. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi. Yes. Good morning, Patty. I listen to your show every day and really enjoy it. Great. Thanks for that.
13: Um, I want to talk about reconciliation. It's a powerful word. It means a lot. It sure it means does. A lot, to, and means different. It's stuff to different people. They might take it um, differently. Um, I don't know where, I've been listening to your show, and I was expecting somebody to phone in, but I haven't heard anybody, so I said, I'm going to give you a call. Um, I don't know where the reconciliation is for the people that lost their status cards. I'm going to be really quick now. Back in the day, I'd like the parents and grandparents registered, um, with different band councils. When band councils were formed on the island, um... A lineages, what like grandchildren, children, and whatever. Some stuff was put into a system, some wasn't. Anyway, it came to the point where they, the government said, okay, well, you can vote. Hadn't give up something. Vote as a landless band to see where this is going to go. So
1: So just people, before we go any further, we're talking about status cards for applications to be uh, Halapu members? Yes. Okay.
13: Yes. Um, so anyway, they... They said, okay, well, we'll vote. So they vote. They got a vote, um, took it to the government. I take it. Um, government said, okay. Application started. This took people, some people, a couple of years. It was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. People had to get birth certificates, um, marriage certificates. They had to look for, for um in archives or whatever for information to do the applications. The applications were done in good faith, good faith with the government. The government sent out the status cards, very well and good. And then, then the government came back to the band and said, oh, you never said there was X amount of people there. You only said there was so much. Well, back in the day, there was a stigma. People didn't want to say like when the ban started, that they were of a native ancestry. And a lot of them didn't know. So anyway, to my thinking, they came back again. The feds came, said, okay, we got to fix this. So they came up with the supplement agreement, which the council, ban council, uh, voted on. It didn't go to the people, which it should have went to the people. Um they voted on Behind Closed Doors and came up with this supplement agreement. Okay, so this is going to take a whole bunch of people out of the picture. Because, God forbid, we would have been, or Haliput would have been, one of the largest bands in Canada. Like, would they think that people didn't have children and their children didn't have children all through the years? So, anyway, there was no consistency... When all of this supplement agreement paperwork was done, and that was another whole piece of work, and it was sent to Manitoba, there was no consistency. Everybody knows that. If if there was, a brother wouldn't have got it and a sister didn't. A twin wouldn't have got it and the other one didn't. A mother wouldn't have got it, like on and on and on. Yeah. And this was a rift with families. Yeah. So now you've got people... So I really like my question answered. Where is the reconciliation? The government of Canada is doing exactly the same thing as what they did years and years ago. They're not recognizing that you are Native. They took something from you. If you really sit down and think about it, this is what's going down. They are saying... In your heart, you know that you are still Native and you're indigenous. You know that from your family line. But the government is saying, oh, no, you're not. You, you, you're not going to get status. So there was a ho- thousands and thousands of people that lost it. Like, the paperwork originally was done in good faith. It was done correctly. If not, you know, it's like the government taking a birth certificate from you. Satan, oh no! You're not who you are. In our hearts, in people's hearts, they know who they are. Because I mean, I'm yeah. not native. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just in the in family line that as long family line it is, and always very proud, and always spoke about it.
1: The, the whole Halapu status application business always felt like a reverse engineering. To me, they had a number in mind that they thought would apply for and be granted status, but then that number was exceeded by maybe 10 times. And then right. all of a sudden, these the point system was also convoluted. So I might have grown up in Con River, a, a family of five, four of them are still there, they got it, I didn't because I moved to St. John's. And so I didn't get that box checked on my application form. I'm pretty sure they had a number they were willing to accept and they made whatever strides required on the point-scoring system to ensure that they didn't exceed that number, and then it all fell apart. Right. Uh, So one question would be, what does reconciliation look like here? Because I think you made the ultimate point at the beginning when you said it means different things to different people. You know, if I'm a member of the government, it means something to me. If I'm a member of one of these community groups, it's a different thing, and completely different for me because I'm a white, blue-eyed townie, right? So it means something different to me. So what do you think it means to those who lost their status cards? Right right and, and what is it is they, they, it money is it recognition is it an apology is it a status card what does it actually look like to get it right yeah.
13: they should be given their status back they did an application showing at the time showing that they were native these right on down through the line their children their grandchildren and 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 on and on like you, you just can't say all of a sudden, oh, you're, you're in in the government in the feds' eyes, you are not native. That they are doing the exact same thing as they did years ago. What's it going to take another fifty, eighty, hundred years for them to come back and and recognize them and say, oh, we made a mistake mistake back in the day, just like they are now. I understand totally, and my heart goes out to the ones that went through what they went through. Don't get me wrong. But there is no reconciliation for people that lost their status.
1: I appreciate the time and the conversation this morning. Thank you very much.
13: All right, honey. You have yourself a good day. You
1: too. Take Thank care. Thank you for listening. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I just a quick check. Uh, Greg Smith has actually sat in for Mr. Williams now, who had to leave. Uh, Greg, how are we doing out there? Okay, so let's try to hit the break on time. We are on the Twitter box for VOCM online. Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email is flying. It's the open line at voceam dot com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like Brian did. Brian's in the queue. I think he's here in the city of St. John's, wants we'll to talk about guidance counselors in the K to twelve system, and then we'll come back and speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Brian. You're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Okay. How about you?
14: I'm pretty good for an old guy. You've been talking a lot lately over the last good number of weeks about the gardensfr- the gardens, um the uh, the the gardens teach in the, in the uh in the schools and you know uh, i've been doing lots of research I researched it when I was teaching myself, and I've been to continue to research that that aspect of the education system since I retired. And I think I think there's a real reason sometimes why why people aren't are not going to get involved in the in the guidance counselling system. And I think I think you know, number one, you don't know what problems you're going to run into when a, a child walks into your office uh, high school or elementary school you haven't got a clue what you're going to hear and I think some some people some teachers in the classroom are not are not prepared for what they're going to hear they may hear things like uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse or dad uh, drink a lot or you know those things another thing too is that school boards and I, and I don't I, I'm not connect with the school systems here in St. John's or Newfoundland. But I know from my research that if you look across Canada, there are school boards who won't allow you to talk about certain issues. The school, there's a lot of school board members that say who are against abortion. So, if a student walks into your office for some guidance counseling and it's a girl who may be pregnant and may be thinking of abortion, you're not allowed to talk about it. It's not part of the system. Uh, especially, say if and I, I'm not attacking the Catholic school system here. I talked with them for many years. And uh but you know, where they're against abortion, they wouldn't agree with their co- uh, counselors talking to a young girl for our partner about uh, an abortion. Or if a, someone may think they're an LGBTQ member, uh you, they they don't want you to talk about such things. Who
1: and doesn't they, want you who doesn't want you to talk about them?
14: Well the, the school boards. What? Um and I got no I I got no reading proof to show it, but from talking to other teachers and talk and teaching in a in a Catholic school system myself Uh, You didn't talk about uh, LGBTQ.
1: But, of course, there's no such thing as the denominational system anymore. And those types of things are discussed. In fact, there's all kinds of groups inside many, many schools right across the country that have these alliance groups. Uh, I don't know exactly what they call them, but it's it's part of the sexual education. It is certainly a topic of discussion amongst the students themselves. So, yeah, I mean, some of the Catholic reservations, they're kind of down by the uh, wayside.
14: But if you look at news said this point about the American political system coming across the border, if you look, say, in places like uh, uh, Florida, where where you got the Ron Santos and his don't mention gay uh, laws well. and uh, different different groups, you know. Uh, having their own views and different and different issues, and I would say that there are some teachers who don't mind being in the classroom, but they wouldn't want to be into and counseling because you could easily get into a lot of trouble by giving some advice on an issue that would protect uh, that elected school board members may not be uh, may not agree with you know so I think um when you're talking about uh, there, you got no gardens councils in your school, there are very few of them. I think it's a lot more than uh, people just don't want going in. They have to, you have to try to find out why they, why they don't want to be there. And I know that if you look at in the last time, last time I was doing some research, uh, the United States have a horrible time trying to find people to fill out va- those vacancies in schools because so many of them are afraid to talk about some issues that elected school boards may not particularly agree with.
1: But that's two different things between the two countries, though. You know, there's uh, a
14: it's, it's, seep- it's, it's seeping into our country, buddy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've said that many times. Um, And the concept of what guidance counselors can and cannot do and trouble they may or may not get in, it's a different set of circumstances when you have a teacher versus someone who's trained as a guidance counselor, which is why teachers will avoid some of those conversations. And I can't say all teachers, but some absolutely would. But there's a distinct difference between speaking with your teacher on these issues and the privacy that you're assured and the training that the guidance counselor gets. So they're kind of two different uh, professions for good reason.
14: Yeah, I agree with you somewhat. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, so we had a conversation on that. We disagree on some things. Uh, before I before I say goodbye to you, I want to say a Merry Christmas to you and your wife and your family. Thank you. And I'd also like to any of your, any of your co- uh, listeners out there this morning who are suffering or bereavement this Christmas, probably there's a loved one, who is not going to be with them this Christmas. And I'd like to say they're going to be in my prayers. Christmas Day is always a difficult time uh, for a family that has a bereavement. And I'll, I'll be praying for them on uh, Christmas Day because I'm sure it'll be very, very difficult for them. So allow me for, for coming on your show and stating my views. Thank you very much and have a nice Christmas, Patty.
1: You too, Brian. Same to you and yours.
14: Thank you.
1: Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go. Line number seven, Joyce, you're on the air.
14: Hi, Patty, me boy.
15: How are
1: you? <laughs> Doing okay, thank you. How are you?
15: Oh, lovely, just lovely. I've been stewing, and I'm losing what I was going to say. I waited so long. Uh, first off, I'd like—I don't like you to interrupt me. If you know, later you can speak up if you want.
1: Are you just going to riddle off the greatest hits, the True Dog greatest hits? Is that where we're going today?
15: Not just that. Okay. Okay. Now, I'd like to say uh, good morning to our dictator up in Ottawa, uh, Trudeau, and I don't see why the man is not put in jail. He's the biggest crook ever watched.
1: Put in jail for what?
15: Everything. Everything. To do with um, the Jets and everything else and how he was underhanded and lying. He's been caught in more lies. He's worse than Pinocchio. And I don't see how people can let him run the country because he's taking away everybody's rights. He's a dictator. And if people believe that he and the Chinese are at odds, think again, they're as tight as they come because I heard him say, he loves the way China runs their country. And as for uh, guidance counselors, I think Trudeau needs one. I think Fury needs one. And what gives Trudeau the right to take away everybody's rights and take away their guns and their rifles and everything else? Like, who does he think he is? You know? What, uh, what
1: rights have I, you lost, Joyce? Just curious. Pardon? What rights have been taken away from you?
15: Uh, Well, it's obvious the rights of... Uh, Owning rifles and that is going to be taken away, and owning handguns is going to be taken away from me. Um, I own handguns, by the way. Um, Anyway, people fall for the rhetoric that Trudeau spews out, and he's so full of it, it's unreal. And as for respiratory illness with the children and the people, if they stop shooting their kids up with the dope the that the government is putting into these needles because they're trying to depopulate the world and people don't believe it, but it's coming down the pipe. They're starving people. They're freezing people. He's taking away all your rights. And he's putting out a little bit of money to shut people up, and they think, oh, he's the greatest. He's giving them nothing because he's taking away more than he'll ever give back. And he doesn't care about seniors or people that are dropping dead that can't get uh, into emergency rooms and hospitals. And the people are giving their children needles, and that's why everything is overrun with kids being sick because they're shooting them up with every kind of drug they got in that needle, whatever it is and a shortage of cough medicine and flu medicine and this and that. Oh, they're uh, coming out with it now because they get it all fixed and who knows what they added to it before they give it out. TO THE PEOPLE TO GIVE IT TO THEIR CHILDREN.
1: THEY'RE TRYING TO KILL PEOPLE? ARE YOU REALLY SAYING
15: Damn RIGHT THEY'RE TRYING TO KILL PEOPLE. AND YOU'RE GOING TO SEE, THEY WANT TO DEPOPULATE THE WORLD. AND IT'S THE VERY RICH WHO WANTS TO DO IT. THEY'RE GOING TO RUN IT, AND WE'RE NOT GOING TO HAVE ANY SAY. WE'RE GOING TO BE LIKE THE PEOPLE IN CHINA. DO AS THEY SAY OR WE'LL MAKE AWAY WITH YOU. And this is what's going on. Come
1: on, Joyce, come on.
15: No, I am, come on. You'll see Patty down the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mother said to me years and years ago, she said, before the beginning, uh, the end of time, you're not going to be able to buy, you're not going to be able to sell. And that's all coming to pass, every bit of it. No truer words were spoken, believe me. But, Patty, I I know you think it's a lot of bull, uh, but it's not.
1: I think some of it is, yeah.
15: Yeah, that's fine. That's your opinion, but this is mine. And as for Trudeau, if he parked the jet, we wouldn't have so much pollution because the man is airborne and he never stays put. Anyway, Patty, I'm going to end with that, and I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and all the
1: people out there, too. Same to you, Joyce. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you
15: have a lovely day. You, too. Bye.
1: Okay, Um, bye-bye. Words matter, right? They do. And people can voice their opinion. Look, I know the shine has come off the prime minister, and people, there's a, a visceral dislike, and for some people, an absolute hate of the man. And... The uh, But words do matter, right? They just do. Uh, let's check in on the Twitter feed before we run out of time. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address, it is indeed openline at VOCM.com. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, Uh, all the callers, listeners, emailers and tweeters. You are all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, uh, Dave Williams and Greg Smith, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.